And welcome back to The Iron List! This is a podcast where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic and uh, people can call me whatever they want. Just not late for dinner. People take pride in being on time for dinner. I guess that's... I, I remember when I, I was a kid. it's a generational thing. When I was a kid, I was really confused by that expression. Yeah, you can call me anything but Did, late for dinner. Yeah, I thought late for dinner was a silly sounding name. D- did you think people were literally assigning themselves the phrase late for dinner as their personal name? Yeah, it took me a really long time to figure that one out. <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding. I was at an embarrassingly old age when I that one finally clicked for me and I realized, mm. "Oh, see, initially we were discussing names, mm. but I changed the subject in the middle for the purpose of a joke." Because uh, if you called me late for dinner, then I might miss dinner, or my dinner might be cold unless we have a microwave. But I am so devoted to dinner, yes, and to being prompt for that particular event, that uh, it would shame me if I were ever late. So never ever call me late for dinner. Well, it's also There's just, pride involved. Also, I think you're just hungry. But yeah, perhaps. Maybe. I, I think it is more of a pride thing. Anyway, this is the Iron List where we talk about weird expressions. Uh, yeah, so and, every and we month- got a weird episode this week. Oh my god, we got such a weird episode this this month. Uh, yeah, this is a monthly podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network in which Whitney Seibold and myself uh, we do lists of uh, movies. People like lists. Mm-hmm. We like lists, but they're kind of time consuming. So we really want to just do like one a month and like get it right. And uh, this month. The options, as are selected every month by our patrons at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, included some like some like standard like cool ones and also a really dumb one that Whitney picked <laughs> and now we're stuck with. <laughs> and I love it and I can't wait to find out how this episode goes because this episode is dedicated to the best eighth movies in a franchise. Now, uh, as we all know, all of the best film series run at least eight chapters. Sure. Uh, Actually, that was conventional wisdom until kind of recently, because uh, Avengers sort of broke that. But, if you look at the Avengers series, the eighth film in that series is considered the worst one. One of them, anyway, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Uh, Thor the Dark World. Yeah, that's that's the one that gets the least amount of of love and respect. It's like Thor the Dark World and Iron Man 2 are generally considered, like, interchangeably, one of those is probably the worst MCU movie we've had, yeah. Uh, But, you know, that film series has been going, what, like, 22 or 23 chapters now? Yeah, we're in the 20s now, yeah. It's pretty pretty impressive. uh, Yeah, they... We were as of a couple of weeks ago. We were supposed to have a twenty fourth film, but uh, it's, yeah. it's they're keeping it until they can put it in theaters and make half a billion dollars in a weekend. I want to ask you because every one of these polls that we do, Whitney picks two uh, options and I pick two options, and it's usually pretty fifty fifty which one mm-hmm. gets picked. Um, but uh, I'm curious why you picked the number eight specifically, especially considering this is the ninth episode of the Iron List. We could have done this last month. Maybe I should have picked parts nine. Um, I think because uh, (laughs) I was raised in sort of that conventional sequel wisdom that the further uh, further away you get from part one, the worse the series becomes. 
So, uh, Often true. Like the, the maybe the only exception was James Bond, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, it, this was like at a time when slasher films were just sort of piling on top of one another and a lot of, you know, were rounding part seven, mm. part eight. And that was considered completely absurd mm. to make it to part eight. Yeah. And uh, it still kind of is. It's pretty like crazy. Eight, eight films on one topic seems a little excessive. We were looking at... E- I, even by the most conventional wisdom. I, I was, and I assume Whitney was too. I was looking at a list of like every movie franchise ever to make sure I didn't forget anything on this list. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, my top like three or four were pretty easy, but then I'm like, okay, I need to round out this list. What is there? Mm-hmm. And there aren't that many, all, all things considered, motion picture franchises that made it to number eight or beyond. And a lot of the ones that did are pretty obscure now. They're like early B-movie franchises, like Blondie or uh, uh, various you know, cowboy stories, etc. Stuff like characters that people didn't even remember, like Mr. Moto. Yeah, well, I think people remember them, but they're, oh. it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird tradition. But yeah, so and I've seen some of those. Mm. Most of them I wouldn't feel good enough putting on a list. Uh, I think the oldest movie I have on my list is from the 1960s. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, the the old saw that sequels suck used to be seemingly true because what would happen is you spend a lot of time and effort making one movie. That movie does well. Maybe you spend a lot of time and effort making the second one. But after that, the idea is okay. Well, the, the title, sto- the story is told. The story is told. The title will sell tickets. The cast will sell tickets if you can still get them. Why put in effort now? Mm. We can just throw something together, make a quick buck on it, and then move on. Which is why, like, the first two Tarzan movies were really good with Johnny Weissmuller. Mm. And then they rapidly started to stink. (laughs) Yeah, that second one is great. Tarzan and His Mate is the best Tarzan movie. Uh, Arguably, I, I, yeah. I, I haven't seen any others that really surpassed it. And you've seen the whole series. I've seen uh, the f- not that whole series. I saw the, the whole series with Johnny Weissmuller. Oh, okay. Which was the first 12. They continued on with a different actor as Tarzan. I suspect that's more than most people have seen. Perhaps. There was a really nice box set of that that came out a long time ago that is now wildly out of print. Oh, yeah. You can, yeah. Uh, Cinephile Video here yeah. in Los Angeles. Bless them. Has every, every video on that box set. Uh, but yeah, I chose number eight because number eight seemed wildly far afield. There aren't a lot yeah. of film series that made it that far, and if they do, they're either really widely seen, like the re- recent blockbusters mm-hmm. that are really effects-based, or they're completely obscure oddities that mm-hmm. people have forgotten about. Or they went straight to video, yeah. so people are like, oh my god, how many how many sniper movies are there or whatever? There's like 14 sniper movies there's a lot. I, mean, I don't think that one, I'm not sure if that one got to eight, but there's a lot of those. Mm. So, yeah, the field gets really, really weird, and it gives us an opportunity to highlight movies that, for the most part, or at least for a significant part, uh, we normally wouldn't talk about. To the extent that my list... Features a lot of films that I'm like, they're okay. Yeah. Like, I, I recommend, and there's nothing on my list I wouldn't recommend. There's nothing on my list I wouldn't tell people to see. Hmm. But there's a lot on my list where I'm just like, it's fine. But that's better than most number eight movies in a franchise. The other thing I think is interesting that we might run into on this list, and I'm curious if we do. Hmm. Whitney and I are not advocates for towing the company line when it comes to franchises and what counts and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, when people talk about, oh, let's raid all the Star Wars movies, I'm like, okay, and Whitney and I are putting, like, the Ewok movies in there and the Great Heap and the Star Wars Holiday Special because they're all feature-length motion pictures. 
Uh, and everyone's like, no, those don't count. Uh, they do. They were Star Wars. They hmm. they count. But but the company doesn't say they're Star Wars. They're not included. They, yeah. they have to have like these certain circumstances in order to be counted as part of the series. Like, well, why are you... They put their name well, on yeah, it. I know, why, it's official. Why are you cherry-picking so much? Yeah, the rights to the characters. You know, same mm. thing with James Bond. Does the original Casino Royale with David Niven count as part of the franchise? There's an argument to be made either way. Yeah. They were made by different people, so I can appreciate that it feels kind of separate. Mm. But it is also a James Bond movie. How does that work? Um, and there are other sort of odd ducks as well. What I ended up deciding moving into this, which is normally I would include everything. Mm. Like, for example, I'm a firm believer that if you're doing a marathon of all the Fast and Furious movies, you have to include Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, because A, that's a great movie, and B, yeah. that is the origin of the character of Han, who shows up as that character from this little independent movie in the Fast and the Furious franchise. The character was mm. written to be someone else. They had it rewritten so that uh, Sung Kang could be in it and play the same guy. Also, um, if you want to get technical, a character from Better Luck Tomorrow shows up in Justin Lin's movie Annapolis. But I think that, but I, but I think that's like a few degrees of Kevin Bacon away. That's like, God, that doesn't connect to Fast and Furious at all. It just connects through Better Luck Tomorrow, so it feels like more of a spinoff. But regardless, well, and and again, you know, main series spinoff. They're all part of the same universe, kind of. You but do, they're owned by different companies. Do you et cetera. count the, like the Deadpool films as X Men films? Some yeah. people don't even count the Wolverine films as X Men films, right. even though they're like in direct story continuity. What I decided to follow for this list, mm. for the sake of not just like being, you know, technically correct, aka the best kind of correct. Uh, I decided to focus on some, for the most part, more conventional ideas of what constitutes a franchise. Okay. Because I feel that if you're just picking what happened to come eighth in movies on a topic, that's okay. But I think it's a little more interesting to see, like, here's like what they were trying to achieve. Here's their official series. Hmm. This is, follows these characters, for example. Uh, they were made by the same company, and this is their number eight. Okay. Even if technically there could be other number eights. <laughs> All right. You know, like, so we're going to get kind of wonky. This might go on a case-by-case basis. I'm, I'm, I think it'd be really, really funny if, like, the same franchise showed up on our list, but we picked different films. <laughs> Which could happen. It, it could happen with James Bond. It could happen with, yeah. Bond. It could happen with Fa- Fast and the Furious. It could happen with a bunch of things. I'm Star com- Wars. I'm completely content to get lost in the weeds on this. Yeah. Because I don't think there, there ever will be a correct answer. Um, now, of course, there is a correct answer. They made movies. They yeah. came out in a certain order. Which one was eighth? That's how you count. Right. Uh, that's, then that's fair. If that's how you chose mm-hmm. to do it, I'm fine with that. I just why, same, I went a different route. But at the same time, if I started to muck around with the numbering a little bit, I can recommend better movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we each uh, had decisions uh, to make. And Whitney yeah. and I do not discuss this beforehand, except no. maybe for a few minutes like before the podcast. We're going, mm-hmm. oh, I hope you didn't pick something stupid. So uh, once again, before we get going, uh, we do our top 10 lists a little differently here at Critically Acclaimed than other people do. Uh, We believe that once you've picked your top 10 list, ranking is kind of irrelevant because they're (laughs) all highly recommended. So we're not going to, whatever order we decide to to present these films, that's not an order. They're just all part of the top 10. They're all highly recommended. With one exception, we do believe that it's our responsibility to pick our number one. Yeah. So each of us has a number one. But nine through, sorry, two through ten, they're all tied. Tied for number two. Even though in this case, there are some movies that are clearly significantly better than (laughs) others on my list. But uh, 
Okay, I guess I see no reason to, to dally any further. Whitney, yeah. why don't you start us off with your like, number uh, 10 pick? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> th- this isn't necessarily like a great film that I would recommend. I think it's perfectly well put together. I think, I think we're going to be saying that a lot on this list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film that has one of the laziest, like the most contrived uh, storytelling devices I've ever seen. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a magical flower. And if you walk close to it, it gives you clips from the past. Like, it, you just see it on a movie screen it, within the context of the oh, film. Oh, no. Like, I it just projects this... in the movie around What you. is it? Uh, it's uh, Pokemon, Lu- Lucario, and the Mystery of Mew. Okay, it's... actually, I assumed you were going for one of those, like, Bugs Bunny anthology films. Oh, God, no. Okay. Oh, oh, this is much better. <laughs> Wait, what is this? What is it called again? It's called uh, Lucar- Pokemon, colon, Lucario, and the Mystery of Mew. It's the eighth Pokemon film. There are 25 Pokemon feature films. <laughs> I've seen I, twenty-three of them. How did I not know you were gonna I did not I did not see this <laughs> also, coming. Also I should is, have. This is just an opportunity for to for me to bring up the fact that I've seen almost two dozen Pokemon feature oh films. God. I still haven't oh. seen The Lion King, by the way. <laughs> the original uh, Lion King. Yeah. You've seen the remake. I've seen, I've seen John Favreau. He's not a Lion Philistine. <laughs> I was there. I reviewed that remake. It sucked. It did. Um Lucario and the Mystery of Mew is the one that takes place at, at the Renaissance Festival. Yay! I love all of this. Pokemon characters dressed up for the Renaissance Festival, <laughs> trading Green Lantern trivia and Klingon. I mean, the, the, it couldn't get much nerdier than that. Uh, again, it's it's not one of my favorite Pokemon movies, but it's one of the better Pokemon movies. Okay. They, they started to fluctuate kind of after about part. They started real bad. They peaked at around number like four like five or six and then they started to fluctuate in quality after that and this one is you know about the middle it's about average but it has some what i appreciate about the pokemon series is their travel logs and they all have uh, interesting settings like interesting sort of utopian urban or utopian uh rural settings where uh, everything seems very placid in the background Which, which makes a good background for, you know, gigantic magical monster battles. As we've established in previous episodes of uh, our shows, mm. I think we talked about this when we reviewed uh, Detective uh, Detective Pikachu. Yeah. There's a formula for every Pokemon movie. Mm. And I, it's got a blank in it. It's pretty oh, simple. It's, uh, so it's a blank <laughs> captures Pokemon, yeah, so, uh, hence there's... upsetting the balance of nature, and we all learn an important lesson about how fighting is wrong. That's that's the theme of every single Pokemon. Film. And that uh, does that persist in Lucario and the Mystery of Mew? Yes. What, who captures Pokemon uh, and how do they upset the balance of nature? There's there's some some dickhead. It's always some dickhead. <laughs> it's never mind who. It's not, never like one of the main characters. Like Ash never like tries to go after like one of the Earth gods. But that's essentially the Pokemon are like Earth deities. Yeah. And uh, or space deities, they control the balance, uh, the membranes between dimensions, whatever, whatever the fuck. And. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, some dickhead tries to capture that thing, and lo and behold, when they capture that thing, (laughs) the balance of nature is upset, and everything goes all topsy-turvy and all wonky, and people get sucked into alternate dimensions, or the weather is messed up, or the earth is going to fall apart, or there's earthquakes, and... It's up to Ash and his little electric mouse to say, no, capturing Pokemon is wrong in that way. And uh, <laughs> you need to stop that. And the dickhead says, oh, God, what have I done? Oh, no, it's too late. But luckily, everything just sort of works itself out. You, often then, through fighting. Usually through fighting. And, yeah, which uh, is wrong. 
And eventually they say, you know what, the first movie is so bad. Pokemon fighting is, I'm used to Pokemon's fighting, but not like this. <laughs> well, how, what, so, because they're not abiding by league rules? What the heck? Blank captures Pokemon. Yeah, is, blank. You made a shirt for that. I did. That's right. You can go to our T Public store and get a T-shirt that says "Blank captures Pokemon." The, can- up- the cancel too soon. We haven't yeah. we haven't updated that. Oh, the, yeah, ever. the cancel too soon. T Fury. Uh, no, T Public or T Public. Excuse me. We haven't updated that in forever. But that shirt's still available. The, uh, um, all the shirts we've made are still available. They're just you know yeah. the store is old. Just no one cares. <laughs> I think I think we did get at least one sale of that shirt oh. though. Um, and I guess I haven't seen this one. I have nothing to contribute to this. I'm actually just embarrassed that I didn't assume you would go Pokemon. <laughs> I'm so stupid. How many series make it this far? That's a, well, Pokemon, I've, I've yeah. actually quite a few. I, my list of films that a film series that did make it this far is pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Um, however, most of them aren't really good enough to mention in a runners up. Right. Like if they didn't make my top ten, there's an excellent chance they're not worth mentioning. Uh-huh. But uh, let's just go with my number ten. Uh, right. So uh, I've already mentioned this franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna go to the uh, Fast and or Furiouses. And again, if you're calling it if for Better Luck Tomorrow as part of the franchise, the eighth film is uh, Furious 7. Oh. However, I'm going to cut the series some slack because that wasn't originally intended to be part of the Fast and Furious franchise. I'm going to just bump one up. All right. And we're going to talk about the fate of the Furious with All the right. A is a number eight. I think it should be. Eight. Yeah. I think it's just F8 of the Furious. That's fine, it? too. I... I think if you look at the title, it's just Fate of the Furious, but you know F8 was what's in their mind. It's brilliant. It's brilliant marketing. And for the ninth film, they just gave up, and it's just F9. 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 No, although well, that one's... But two, Universal two, was two, smart. Universal two, nine, delayed two, that until next year right away. Yeah. They didn't, yeah. They didn't like, dally. They, they weren't just like, eh, July, maybe? Like, no, we're just, so we like, know it's going to be bad. We're going to go right to next year. How many release date have, like, Tenet and Mulan gotten at this point? Every like, two, four or five release dates Every now? other week, Tenet has to move its release date. It's not happening, Warner Brothers. Just chill. Wait, wait one year. God. <laughs> Before you even start thinking about it. But um, the Fast and Furious is a really fascinating franchise because it started out so... Unambitious. Mm. In the, fact, the, the first one was kind of a ripoff movie. Um, yeah, I mean, the, was, the first one was basically a remake of Point Break, but with cars. Yeah. That's it. It's a whole plot. Cars Except, actually make more sense than the surfers. They do, actually. So it's like, yeah, it's about high-speed thieves who are infiltrated by a hunky young FBI agent who's also good with cars. And he forms a really close bond with the charismatic leader of the thieves. And in the the only difference is that at the end of Fast and Furious, you know, there's leaves room for sequels. Smart going. Mm. Uh, the first Fast and Furious sequel was okay. Too Fast and Furious, kind of the name is the best part of it. And and the, and, and, and the the gay undertones are pretty fun. That's too. fun. Oh, yeah. That's I'm not. It's not unwatchable. It's a, it's an okay mm. sequel. It just doesn't. It wasn't kicking the franchise into high gear. And then the franchise almost went straight to video with number three. They came this close. But and, and it has a straight-to-video vibe to it because there's not a lot of connective tissue. Until the last yeah. until the last scene, it doesn't connect to anything in the Fast and Furious movies. It's just another story about people and crime and cars. Yeah. Fast and Furious 3 is great. Tokyo Drift is a really, really good movie. It's well-crafted. And the little sequel tease at the end of it with Vin Diesel inspired people to want to see more. Uh-huh. Then we got Fast and Furious, which sucked. <laughs> but it set the stage for Fast 5, which is one of the best action movies of the last decade. Agreed. And I will say the same thing about Fast and Furious 6. 
They are both just top to bottom, mm. fun, ridiculous action movies that know exactly what they are. And by that point in the franchise, we'd all developed enough of a connection to everybody that almost in spite of ourselves, we cared what happened to them, no matter how mm. stupid the plot was. Furious 7, there's a lot of stuff I like about it, but obviously Paul Walker died in the middle of it, and mm. they had to just sort of go completely mad in the editing room trying to find a way to make that movie work, and I think they had mixed success. I, I use, A complaint of mine about a lot of uh, modern blockbusters is they feel really overstuffed. Like, let's do, like, eight more action sequences, yeah. and the story is that much more complicated. It's like, just in and out in 90 minutes, guys. I don't need this much. Yeah. I feel like with uh, Furious 7, which is one of my favorites, like, 5 and 7 are my two favorites okay. in the series, uh, it, it actually kind of worked just because it was so blisteringly balls against the wall about its uh, thrills. Sure. It's like, we're going to have this sequence. Okay, that could be a whole movie. Yeah, but we got eight more of them, so I sit tight. Yeah. That movie's two and a half hours long, and you're exhausted, and you're getting up, and you're going to the bathroom, and getting more food, <laughs> just so you can survive to the end of it. it. It feels like watching an entire serial yeah. in, in a fun sort of way. I think that's, and I think there's a couple movies on my list, I think, that could be described that way. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then with Fate of the Furious, mm-hmm. um, we didn't have Paul Walker anymore. That sucks. Yeah. We all miss him. But I think they found a pretty good way to keep going. I think they uh, realized that the ensemble is still a great ensemble. And we just need to get them back together and have fun. But we need to find a way to up the stakes when these characters have literally shown that they can do anything with cars. Like, they're kind of mm. invincible. How did so, you know that car was going to be there to break our fall? One of the dumbest lines in movie history. Cars do not break falls, they break bones. <laughs> you morons. How did you know that car was going to be there to break our skull? Amazing. Uh, but I think Fade and the Furious, I like Fade and the Furious a lot. I think it does a lot of really, really fun things with the franchise. How do you raise the stakes? Well, first off, you get Charlie Theron as the bad guy. Awesome choice. <laughs> really, really great. But the real way you raise the stakes in this is you get Vin Diesel, the most unstoppable car badass, to betray the team. And they come up with a decent reason to do that. There was a character that he had like a relationship with a few movies ago before Michelle Rodriguez came back from the dead with amnesia. Thanks, Fast and Furious. That was clever. (laughs) But I appreciate this because you look at superhero movies and they operate like soap operas. They do. People poo-pooed soap operas for so many years. And superhero movies are doing the same thing. Superhero movies do the exact same thing. And the comics have been doing the same thing since the 60s. Like every every issue of Spider-Man was just like, who's he going to date this week? And Cool, I guess. And and also to to keep these stories going for decades, they have to come up with all kinds of weird contrivances. Oh, and this is now Parallel Universe Spider-Man. Now he's a clone, and now he made a deal with the devil, and now he has another identity, and all all these weird action movie contrivances just 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 to keep things going. And after a while, you just either accept them or you don't. You either enjoy them or you you give up altogether. I feel like uh, the Furious series has more openly embraced their more soap operatic elements. They have stuff like he's dead, but he's not. I'm a yeah. bad guy. I'm a good guy. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm a serial killer who killed an entire hospital, but I'm okay. Cause I protected one baby once. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. I still don't feel like the, I still don't feel like I'm on board with Shaw being part of the team. I love Jason Statham in those movies, but I don't feel like they fully redeemed him. I realized that since they were already revealed in the trailer for the next one, that um, Han, the character he killed is back. Hmm. Okay, that does take the edge off. You should have done that a long time ago. You should have done that right away. Because, man, he was I was not on board with him being a hero for a while. But uh, so, but they come up with the example of he uh, Vin Diesel's character had a baby he didn't know about. 
And that baby and the mom were kidnapped by Charlie Theron, and she was forcing him to do all these bad things because, as we all know, nothing's more important than family. Thank you, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> it's, you know, it's about family. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And also cars. I love the Fate and the Furious because it has some of the craziest action sequences in this mm. whole series. I always appreciate that they refuse to let them they refuse to not top themselves they must top themselves every time mm. and they do a pretty good job of it so we start with one we start with a car race i think in cuba mm. where uh it, th throughout the race vin diesel's car explodes and is on fire and he finishes the race yeah, and in fact he's he's driving so fast the hood blows off the car <laughs> first of all it, it's it's like he's doing it for like his his brother or his cousin or something because yeah. it's about family yeah and uh the car he wants to enter in this, like, the bad guy has, like, su super souped-up hot rods, you know, neon green, got a yeah. huge engine, and can drive faster than a plane. And he, this guy comes up with it, which is essentially like a Geo Metro, like a, yeah. a, a little kind <laughs> a of... A jalopy. It's, yeah, no, this thing that's falling apart, it's not in great shape, it's, oh, it can go pretty fast, and, and Vin Diesel's like, no way. So they have to strip off as many pieces as they can to make it lighter, so yeah. they can make it go faster. He adds, like, some twin-duction engines or whatever. Yeah pours Gatorade on the engine just to make it go faster and and the engine explodes and Vin Diesel is is completely nonplussed boom oh fuck it's just, <laughs> again whatever and <laughs> and he keeps on driving with the flaming engine until he realizes oh no there's fire getting in my eyes <laughs> I also uh, like that. So, so he, he turns <laughs> like does a spin, like spins the car around and finishes the race backwards just so the fire will be going the other way, which I call the maniac McGee move <laughs> when you finish a race backwards. Uh, that, that, that race is also great because I think it's the first time since the second movie that this series has acknowledges that motorcycles exist. It's a very car-centric series. Well, I mean, and, Torque was was trying to start that. And Torque is amazing, and Torque is one of the best Fast and Furious movies. It just happens to not be a Fast and Furious movie. Uh, it, Torque was doing all of the crazy shit people love about the Fast and Furious movies now, mm. right after the first Fast and Furious. People were not ready for it. They thought it was stupid then. It's awesome. <laughs> but uh, but the other there are a bunch of other really cool action sequences in the Fate of the Furious. Uh, it ends with this crazy one with like a nuclear submarine in the Arctic, and they're like skidding their cars on the ice and like grabbing torpedoes and sliding <laughs> them along the car. God, that's wonderfully dumb. But the best one of all, the absolute best and coolest one of all, is the zombies. The zombies. The zombie cars. Oh yes, the zombie. So cars. Vin Diesel is going to pull this, this big. This is my is my favorite. He's going to pull this big <laughs> yeah. crazy heist hit job in New York, and all of the team is going to like go after him. And there's this great bit where they all latch like grappling hooks onto Vin Diesel's car. But Vin Diesel is so good with cars that it doesn't matter that eight different cars are pulling in other directions. His car is stronger because Vin <laughs> Diesel is driving. Awesome. <laughs> but what happens is Charlie Theron. The wheels go faster. <laughs> Charlie Theron is such an amazing like hacker and has like cool hackers on her payroll. She, and she's like flying around in helicopters above the, yeah. the, the scene. It's a so. plane, but yeah, it's fucking awesome. And so it's just like, okay, I'm going to take... hit a few buttons on my iPad. I'm going to hit a few buttons on my iPad and that's going to make every single car with an electrical system. There cannot possibly this be this many self-driving cars in New York City, maybe mm -hmm. even the world. But we're going to get all of the cars in New York City to just follow Vin Diesel along like an army of zombies and like flying off of the rooftops of parking garages and shit. 
It is one of the most ludicrously conceived action sequences I've ever seen. It is nearly perfect. <laughs> it's raining cars. It's so <laughs> much fun. The only thing that uh, that's keeping Fate and the Furious from being just like a later... I, I, I think I'll save like the better ones on the list for later, but like... The only thing Stephen movie made for me one of the best Fast and Furious movies is this was directed by F. Gary Gray, a really, really good director. He did Straight Outta Compton, mm. he did The Negotiator, he did Friday. Uh, I think he had an opportunity to connect this to his very best movie, Set It Off. Because there's oh, one character great, because yeah. one of his characters survived from that. Like, that would have been awesome. Like, bring it all together, because that's not that far afield tonally from the original Fast that and is Furious. A he- it's a heist movie. It's so. a heist movie. It's more serious and it's got more like social commentary in it, but you know, that's just happening across town. Like, I buy that it would be in the same place. So, fuck it. Bring it in. I never thought of that. That's I, great. I yeah. asked F. Gary Gray if he'd been tempted, and apparently he, like, almost kind of did. There's, like, one character oh. in, like, a tiny, tiny role who's in Set It Off, who kind of was playing a similar character. And he told me, he told me there's an Easter egg in there that sort of connects something, like something on the radio at some point. I didn't know it at the time. He kind of just told yeah. me to go look for it. But apparently there's something in there. Um, or so I'm told. But, uh, yeah, anyway, Fate of the Furious. It's really fun. It's, it's a, really done. So if Better Luck Tomorrow and Set It Off are now part of the Furious universe. <laughs> then Furious... Then Fate of the Furious is the 10th film in the series. Yeah, and then Fast and Furious 6 is would also make this list. That movie yeah. fucking rules. Um, uh, I'm not going to be contrarian and say, oh, Furious 7 is the 8th film in the series. I, I also have Fate of the Furious on my list. Oh, there you go. So, uh, you know, we, we just discussed it at length. Um, yeah, I, I like Fate of the Furious as well. My favorite scene is The Raining Cars. Uh, cars are everything in this universe. They literally fall from the sky. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm wondering what's next, and I'm guessing they can only have a carnado. Like, <laughs> they're going to have some race across Kansas. There's going to be a tornado. They're going to jump from car to car. The they're driving is, around in series. The theory in circles is, through the air. The theory right now is that at some point they're going to drop a car from orbit. <laughs> you, know, you know like they sent a car into orbit for no good oh, reason we have to yet, get that car wouldn't it be great if they dr- they drove a car into orbit like it's on because they've they, there was that one in uh, I think it's in Furious 6 oh, where God. it's on the, the that world's sound longest, was me slapping my forehead it's <laughs> the world's longest runway like it's a chase that takes 15 yeah. minutes and I think somebody calculated if that run they were going that fast on that runway the runway would have been like like 60 miles long or oh, something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That that movie makes no sense yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> Even so from imagine, Fast and Furious perspective, that movie makes no sense. So imagine the same sort of sequence, like a, a shuttle, like one of those uh, passenger orbit shuttles, like an Elon Musk type thing is taken off, and a car races onto that, and everybody's fighting in zero gravity, and the car, somebody has to get in a car and drive out of that in orbit and just dive back to Earth on top of a blast shield so they don't get hurt. And then they land on a car so it breaks their fall. <laughs> Nice. That's that's uh, that's Furious Nine or Nine as they're calling it. <laughs> oh, what's what's another one on your list? Because I I also have Fate of the Furious. Uh, hold on. Yeah, um, oh, no, I'm, I'm looking at my F. Gary Gray interview. I'm oh, sorry. okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, actually, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here's so here's the quote from the F. Gary Gray thing. I asked um, uh, about the set it off connection. Um, let's see. If you look really closely, Oleg Krupa, who is the Russian from the Italian job with the hatchet, is the Russian in the New York sequence of Fate of the Furious, but he's not the same character, he's not the same Russian. Oh, it's just the same actor. But, here's what I was remembering, and I was a little wrong. But we have a few characters from the Italian job, which F. Gary Gray directed. Oh, that's right, like the remake of the Italian job. Which also had Charlie Theron, and there are a couple of F. Gary Gray Easter eggs in there if you really look closer. So, 
maybe not set it up, but I guess the Italian job has a direct connection right now. <laughs> which is funny, because that also had Charlie Theron and Jason Statham. But anyway. Um, all right, so... Um, Cast I, the people he likes. Um, all right, I guess I'll move on, uh, because that was your number nine. Uh, my, my number nine, I'm going to go with a film that, as soon as this was announced that we were doing this one mm-hmm. on our Patreon, someone left a comment that's like, Bibbs is going to talk about this again. And they were right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll make it quick, because I, I defend this movie a lot. Does it start lot. with a Z and end with an Ichi? No. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll get to that. All right. But no. Uh, so... Uh, Certain horror movies get dumber yeah. as they go along, which is to say most over time as franchises continue. Uh, sometimes they get gloriously dumb, mm. and one of those times is the Jason movies. Friday the 13th, awesome franchise, mm. cheap, ridiculous, sometimes genuinely good and scary. I think the first two and the remake are just solid slasher movies by any estimation. You get like the second one, especially. But second yeah. one's particularly good. I think second one is the best. Um, then you get like four, which is a perfectly fun, like really tidy '80s slasher with some good ideas. And then they get really fucking weird for a few films between six and ten, <laughs> because six is when Jason finally becomes a zombie. Six movies into the franchise, he decided to introduce the supernatural. They hadn't done that yet. No, it's still science. And it's Whitney's arguing that because Jason is brought back to life with lightning, it's technically science. He wasn't quite dead when they buried him for years, and, and then he was just—he so was—he was in that coffin for like ten years. The kid grew up. He was buried when he was buried when the kid was Corey Feldman, and he was resurrected when the kid was out of high school. It'd been a while. Uh, all right, all it had right, been a while. Is my point. Also, yeah, I believe yeah, in the worm, fifth one they said were, he'd been cremated. Worms were crawling. <laughs> well, they did. Uh, worms were crawling into his mouth. That's how he was sustaining himself. He was eating eating dirt yeah. down there. Anyway, uh, in number seven of that series, uh, he fought a psychic teenager. It's basically Jason versus Firestarter slash Carrie. That one's also fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to skip eight for a second. In it's, number nine, uh, we found out he was a body swapping demon from hell. The whole time, and we never got around to it. Also, he has a weird fetish for shaving people. And at number 10, he went to space. Mm-hmm. Number eight, right in the middle, he took Manhattan from the Muppets. The Muppets had had Manhattan for a while. Jason took it back, and he's had it ever since. I don't think there's been a movie called Blank Takes Manhattan since Jason Takes Manhattan. They've all been mm-hmm. like, that's a fight we don't want. Surely there's been like a Sharknado Takes Manhattan. You'd think, but I don't think so. Oh. I don't know. I think Jason still has Manhattan. I, I asked, I interviewed Kermit once and I asked him, will you ever take Manhattan back from Jason Voorhees? Mm-hmm. And Kermit said, we'll let him have it. <laughs> and it was a smart move, I think. Because uh, Jason Takes Manhattan is a movie that gets a really raw deal, specifically because of the title. It's kind of like Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Mm-hmm. Where if you hadn't called it Halloween 3 and if you just called it Season of the Witch... Uh-huh. It wouldn't make it a better movie per se, but I think people would have been more willing to get on its wavelength because they weren't expecting another Michael Myers thing. I think maybe not because that movie is stupid. It is stupid, but it's fun. <laughs> and and it, there's a lot of stupid fun movies it, in the, the 80s people like. The absence of Michael Myers isn't what makes that movie stupid. It's about you know this really contrived plot about chipping off chunks of Stonehenge and putting them inside magical masks and tuning them up with TV signals just so you can murder kids remotely. It's a bizarre story. It's super bizarre, but I think it would have had its own cult. It didn't. Uh. Halloween three didn't really come around in people's estimation until I think the late two thousands. There was always a couple of people here and there. It's actually not that bad. And then we'd all shout them down. Mm. 
Now everything realizes that it's fun. It's stupid, but fun. But I think the reason why it took so long for anybody to appreciate it is because it was called Halloween. And I feel the same way about Jason Takes Manhattan. Because the most common complaint, and honestly, sometimes the only complaint I see about this movie is that Jason doesn't get to Manhattan until the third act. It is a problem. It's true. And it, you have a movie called Jason Takes Manhattan. You want him, like, hanging off the Empire State Building. And, and I grant you that. I'll grant you that. Mm. But I think that's the fault of the title, not so much the film. The film itself is highly entertaining in the Jason yeah, but, world. But I feel J- like Jason Takes a Boat Ride to New York isn't so exciting a title, is Jason it? Takes Titanic is a good one. So you just rename it Titanic and it's awesome. The thing if it was the, actually like Titanic, uh, I'm there. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> that'd be the best damn thing ever. But uh, I feel like Calling it Jason Takes Manhattan when that only happens at the end uh-huh. harkens back to this earlier wave of uh, sort of franchising where you would have something that's a selling point, but you really wouldn't get to it until the end. Like, um, I think you and I have both seen Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein doesn't fight the Wolfman until the last scene and it gets cut off by an explosion. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> That sucks right there. That's yeah. just that's just really say, disappointing. Say you what you will about Batman v Superman. At least they had like a fight scene. Yeah, they knew that we wanted it's, to get to the cool stuff. I'll grant you that. It's dumb, you know, we're like picking up like sinks yeah. and toilets and bashing each other yeah. in the head. Well, but, this yeah. is one of the reasons why I think the original Avengers was so popular was they actually got to hang out. We don't want to see these characters get together in the final act. We want to see them get together and we yeah. want to spend time with them together. We want to spend they, time with the selling point. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's almost like um like a fight video game. Like what two characters can we have a fight with? Yeah. This one Iron Man and Thor will fight. And how would that work out? Okay. Cool. Briefly in lightning. Yeah. We'll, we'll choreograph something. It's fun. Yeah. It's a good time. So, <clears throat> I'll grant you that the promise of the title is not quite delivered. However, what I will argue is this. Before he gets to Manhattan, that is a very entertaining Jason on a boat movie. That is a very, very... It's, there's fun characters. There's weird it's sides. Okay, it's okay. Dude, people are doing dumb music videos, and mm-hmm. he's, like, killing them in the middle of guitar solos and shit, and there are people wearing, like, skin-tight bodysuits that are flesh-toned, and having people, like, draw organs on them is, like, sex, <laughs> like, teasing. I don't know. It's, I don't get that bit at all. It's so fucking weird. There's a plot point where someone gets, like, Stephen King's pen so that they can go off and become a great horror writer. It's all fun, weird stuff. And when the boat finally gets to New York, the New York stuff is fun. The New York stuff is fun. The New York stuff you. is and, crazy. And like, I appreciate, there's a bunch of really cool shit that happens And there. I appreciate that at, at the end of the movie, uh, spoilers, he dies because uh, that's the way these movies operate. Yeah. Uh, For a J- while. Jason is taken out by New York filth. <laughs> There's like a tidal wave of sewage. Yeah, t- uh, he's he's <laughs> melted by just the grime and, and horribleness of New York. It was yeah. t- too much for even Jason. Yeah. Uh, and... Something I think that that uh, people don't really talk about uh, when they talk about Friday the 13th is how New Jersey-centric these movies are. Yeah. They're very specifically about a, a, an ultimately East Coast experience. Yeah. The whole campfire thing, the whole kids going off to camp out of the big city. I mean, that's nationwide, but that was really, really common for kids living in New York. They'd go to these camps in New Jersey because uh, that's where there were still campgrounds. Yeah. There's no camping, like, in the... in you know, downtown Manhattan or the Bronx. If you're from the Bronx, yeah, I'm sure there's campgrounds, so don't write in. But I'm just talk- <laughs> talking. I'm just talking generally. Uh, so yeah, the, this idea of uh, going going from the big city in out into the woods and encountering these campfire stories 
is uh, you know, Jason as a campfire story. It's yeah. sort of an element that fell away from it after like maybe the second one. Uh, uh, I think it comes back a little to... bit in the fourth, but yeah, it's gone after a while. Oh, yeah, like I everybody says, oh, Camp Crystal Lake, Camp Crystal. Lake. Well, it's a camp, right? Yeah. I wish I could have could have seen Camp Crystal Lake like in full operation for an extended period. Uh, six, anyway. six is the only one. Is it? They're, otherwise, they're preparing it. But in six, they're actually right. kids the, the camp, in the camp. That's camp, right. In the, yeah, yeah. In the camp. In, uh, in, yeah, in one and cabins. two, I think they're just sort of prepping for yeah. it to go. But yeah, and then two, three and four, it's gone. And then in five, uh, it's not a camp. It's like a home yeah. for wayward kids. And then in six, yeah, it's been long enough. They've rebranded the town. The whole town's called um, Forest Green now. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and they've tr- tried to start the summer camp back up again. And of course, Jason attacks. Mm-hmm. Six is wonderful. Six is delightfully dumb. I love Six so yeah, much. And, you know, Chucky is also from New Jersey, so I'm surprised they never tried to get those two to cross. That would have been cool. Yeah. You had a theory once that Chucky was Jason's dad. Uh, it, the timing works out a, like it's a little wonky, but it could work. Yeah. Would have been <laughs> like fun. If, if, uh, if a teenage Charles Lee Ray had, like, had impregnated his girlfriend, Jason's mom... At, at like going away at camp when he was a kid in, in New Jersey, that that kind of would have made sense. Yeah, but it doesn't. Sure, just do that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, this movie is gets a bit of a raw deal. It talks about it a lot. I know some people are sick of hearing about it, so I'll just move mm-hmm. along. Uh, I think it's very entertaining, and it is hardly the worst film in this franchise. Uh, Wendy, what's your number eight? Um, I, I'm not hugely fond of Jason Takes Manhattan. Fair uh, enough. I, I think. The Jason movies are pretty terrible, but they're entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not like the Halloween movies, which are like the first one's really great, mm-hmm. the third one has a cult, and the rest are pretty bad. I, I will go to bat for I think four is a perfectly good slasher, maybe not amazing, but very it's, it's well maybe made. My second favorite, and yeah. then H two O has some really great character work. Yeah, in particular yeah. from Jamie Lee Curtis, she really makes that movie. And I, and I appreciate that one because it's like sixty-one minutes. It's like really, yeah. really. Sh- it's yeah. it's like eighty-five minutes, but yeah. it's really short. It's very, very efficient. Mm. But you're right. The the hit to miss ratio in the Halloween mm. franchise, especially the original franchise, not good <laughs> at all. You didn't pick mm. Resurrection, did you? Oh God, no. Okay, um, Jesus. I, I put some of these titles down because <laughs> I, I was just trying to count how many movies I've seen the part eights of. Yeah, and and it's you know. More than I was, more than I was expecting, but fewer than you might think. Yeah. So I've seen things like Hellraiser Eight, Hellworld. Ooh. I'm not going to mention Hellworld because Hellworld sucks. Yeah, it's a really bad. I'm movie. not going to mention Halloween Resurrection because Halloween Resurrection sucks. Not even uh, in an entertaining way. It's just there's like two funny scenes. You'll see clips of them online. You don't need to see the rest. It's not good. <laughs> it's really dumb. Michael Myers gets a reality TV show. Pass. Hosted by Buster Rhymes. Yeah, who does get to Kung Fu Kick. Michael Myers in the face. That's the best part of the movie. Yeah. The rest of it, not so much. And Jamie Lee Curtis is like, please, just really kill me Oh this my god, time. that opening so really, That opening was so sad. Anyway. Uh, I've seen the first 13 witchcraft movies. None of them are worth a flip. <laughs> Number nine might be the worst movie I've ever seen. It's one wow. of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's so bad. Awesome. Those witchcraft movies are, are constructed... They're, they're breast delivery systems. Like, they're, yeah. they're softcore smut yeah. at best. With, like, and a little the, horror element. Yeah, there's yeah. some horror elements. The stories make no sense. There's no car- character consistent character work. Ca- characters are recast as the series goes, and you would never know. <laughs> unless you're paying really close attention. Yeah, and... and uh, Witchcraft Nine, Bitter Flesh. There's a scene where uh, a witch. That's not takes, even sexy sounding. Yeah, bitter, bitter flesh. Bitter flesh. Pass. 
Uh, there's, no, a thank scene, you. there's a scene where a, a, a witch who's posing as a sex worker takes a cop back to her hotel room and they clearly just shot in like the work, like a hotel that had clearly been condemned. Like you could see the <laughs> construction equipment outside the window and they're rolling around on this carpet and it's like you can see the dust clouds coming up and you can just practically hear like roach corpses crunching <laughs> on their bodies oh, and little nails sticking up out of the carpet. Oh. The most unpleasant thing. And then they'd leave and they walk down the hallway. It's like, oh, God, please get shots. Oh, God. You, you caught something from the rusty nails. The sacrifices of the people make for to make to make witchcraft. Witchcraft nine. I've seen the first 13. There's three more now. Oh. <laughs> They're up to 16. Now. One of these days we need to do a special. and we'll, yeah. we'll watch all the witchcraft movies. Number 16. They pull back and it posits that the previous 15 witchcraft movies were a satanic plot made by the producers of the witchcraft movies. <laughs> <laughs> the moxie yeah where the hell do you go the sheer that? unbridled moxie of that holy mm. crap anyway but uh, this is all lead up to something I hope because you need to pick a new film uh, what's your number just, 8 what what's is, your number 8 pick what is my number 8 of the number 8s um you know, James Bond's pretty reliable, and because I'm not so fond of Live and Let Die, even though I like uh, Roger Moore, I'm going to go for Diamonds Are Forever, because I will count Casino Royale. But you won't count the Barry Nelson TV movie. No, because that's, okay. that's a TV episode, not a feature film. But it's a standalone t- movie of the week kind of thing, though. Mm, that's true. There's, if, 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 you're not, if you know what we're if talking I'm, about. If I'm counting the TV special, then the film before Diamonds Are Forever would be Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Um, if you don't count Casino Royale, yes. Yeah. Here's the. By the way, if you know what the hell we're talking about, um, obviously a lot of people know about the David Niven comedy version of Casino Royale from the '60s, which is borderline unwatchable. Like, there's some good bits, but like, it's not a good movie. Um, the very first adaptation of James Bond was a TV movie uh, based on Casino Royale that starred Barry Nelson, a name you probably don't know, but he played the guy who ran the Overlook Hotel and hired. Uh, Jack Nicholson at the beginning of The Shining. He had a long career in the industry. Uh, and it also starred Peter Lorre as Le Chiffre, uh, the character played by Mads Mikkelsen in the new Casino Royale and Orson Welles uh, in the original uh, 60s movie. Uh, that TV movie is kind of weird because they recast Bond as an American spy. This is before mm-hmm. he had any sort of cultural cachet and they just didn't think anyone cared. It's not bad. Mm-hmm. It's an efficient TV movie. Like, it's fine. Uh, but it, it, it does get make the numbering kind of weird. Yeah. So which one are you picking officially? Uh, let's see. Well, if, if I'm given my choice, yeah. I'm going to pick Honor Majesty. I'm going to pick Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Okay. Uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The, it is the the one George Lazenby film. George Lazenby. Uh, the the film I think is too long, and uh, but I do appreciate that they uh, they gave him a love interest that was supposed to stick this time. It wasn't mm-hmm. just sort of like. The Bond girl, but at the same time, they put him in a ski lodge with a bunch of like horny young women, and and he wears a kilt, and they just sort of go wild for James Bond, and he sleeps with all of them. So that that's well, got a counter to everything. Well, the other thing is he he meets the love of his life in that movie, the mm. the quote unquote Bond girl, which is a term I really think we need to retire. It's kind of demeaning, but I mean the whole series is demeaning. True, it's, it's but I date, think... the whole series is dated, sexist, violent. It's, yeah, I uh... agree. I agree, and it's I'm, I'm I appreciate that some work has been done to update it. Maybe not enough. And when you watch these older movies with a, anything resembling a contemporary mindset, you're gonna go, ah, oh, there's a lot of this that's awkward, mm. and. Even if you can get past that, there's a lot of it that's really slow. I can I have so much trouble getting through Thunderball. 
Thunderball's, Thunderball's underwater. Terrible. Thunderball's underwater sequences. It's I, one of the worst James Bond. I know movies. underwater stuff was cool, like in the '60s, and everyone was like, mm. "Ooh, scuba! How exciting!" Not on film, it's not. <laughs> it's really boring on there, film because there's no sound and people are moving slowly. Yeah, yeah. it's just the death of the film. Uh, but uh, in her, on Imagine Secret Service, his the main love interest in it is played by Diana Rigg from Avengers fame. She's amazing. She's she's Diana Rigg. Yeah, she's she's yeah. so great. She really is his equal in a lot of different ways. She gets to really join in on a lot of the fun, and in the end, they get married. It's a very short marriage. Mm. They did not get divorced. I'll, I'll let I'll let it go there. Bad things happen, but. She's great in this movie, and I think that's actually one of the reasons why this is this isn't my upper echelon Bond films, but this is a very very good Bond film. Yeah. Also, Telly Savalas is a really really good um, Blofeld. Blofeld yeah. took me a second. Blofeld is played by a lot of different actors over the years, mm-hmm. and Telly Savalas is definitely one of the best. I think Charles Gray might be my favorite. He's fun. Yeah, he's fun. Charles Gray did it in Diamonds Are Forever, which mm. I think is an underrated Bond film. It's silly and fun. It's silly, and it was uh, cur- it was curious because uh, George. I don't know if. People really hated George Lazenby, uh, or if it was a combination of a lot of different factors, but he only played James Bond in one feature film. I heard he blamed his agent. Like, his agent's like, yeah. you played Bond, your star is set. You can do whatever you want now. You don't have to take the so, offer to do another one. And he's like, okay. And I, oh, shit. Because <laughs> George Lazenby didn't exactly have an amazing career in mm-hmm. acting. I think he worked, but like... Yeah, Maybe he should that, have stayed that, as Bond that, that for a while. His, If he wanted to continue to make giant films and become a bazillionaire, then yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those mean, stories are mm, kind of apocryphal. It's hard to say what's real and what's uh, not. And, but, and meanwhile, yeah. the apocryphal stories about Daniel Craig is he's trying to get out as hard as he can. Like, he, I don't blame he has, him. Like he did two. He's like, okay, I'm good. No, no, keep doing. Oh, shit. Like he doesn't want to keep I'll, playing. I'll Bond. do one more, but it's got to be really depressing and bad. Mm. Okay, we'll make Spectre. Thanks. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, that was too depressing and bad. We want you to go out on what looks like a good one. So they're doing this next one, which like, I hope is good. I, I, I hope so. I mean, it be, the stunts look cool. I like that bit where he shoots the he uh, jumps the motorcycle up like eight stories and just lands on top of something like within a couple of feet. That's a cool fucking stunt. <laughs> I look at that trailer. I'm like, holy shit, that's a good one. I haven't seen that one before. So it, it, it's cool stunts, but I mean, we don't need James Bond anymore. No. Like he, he's. That, that's why I appreciate Goldeneye so much. It's the first one that said it was after the fall of the Berlin Wall, yep. and they wanted to make another James Bond movie. And the first, like the whole, the big question of that movie is why? Yeah, why do we need James Bond anymore? And it didn't really definitively answer. I think it's like okay, there's still well, there's like some things left over from the Cold War the that we're gonna have to clean some stuff up. Yeah. So it was almost like the Cold War. It was kind of like uh, uh, at the end of World War One, uh-huh. where all of a sudden we had trained like an entire generation of Americans how to use guns. Like really, really, really well, and then they came back, and they're wearing a lot of they jobs and skills. Yeah. And some, and some of them went into organized crime, and now all of a sudden, the criminals like know how to use a Tommy gun like nobody's business, and things escalated really bad. And that's kind of what Goldeneye was about: was hey, we trained all these people to do all these amazing things that could completely change the landscape of the world, and then we fired them. <laughs> what other opportunities yeah. did they? What do you expect them to go into data entry? They're going to use the skills they've got. Not a bad idea. Mm. Mission Impossible 1 was about the same thing. Yeah. So that was a lot of the Cold War spy movies where we're going to make spy movies about how spying was always bad, but we need spies to solve it. And that's going to hold us off until we have more stuff to actually spy about. And Mm. it did. (laughs) And now we're back. And now we're back. Uh, 
And of course, they, they had to change everything when Daniel Craig came along because the world changed and yeah. the state of warfare was different. Everything was yeah. violence. He's getting and, tortured. And, and Born Identity and, uh, had changed what people expected of action movies. Yeah, and I think so, largely for the better. I think it toned things down a bit. I, I think it's you know very. A lot of people say it's a lot more loyal to the books. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't read the books. The but books, it, the it books is, are quite it, good. It actually. is different than the spirit of the films we've had to date in mm. a, a not a very satisfying way. But I think that Casino Royale is... Like, it's it's the only time they bothered to, like, write a good James Bond story. Yeah, like, like it's a, a good story, story about char- James like Bond, yeah. Characters and story and, like, actual plot and dialogue. Like, they yeah. actually made a movie out of it, which yeah. is really satisfying. Still think it's the best one. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, yeah. Uh, uh, Blofeld has... A ski lodge in the mountains where he is hypnotizing the daughters, the very sexy daughters, of the great leaders of the world. And he's going to send them back in to, was it kill people or just like manipulate? It was just, I think it was just manipulate. Just manipulate people. But a really weird, insidious, overly elaborate plan and Bond has to stop it. And The most common complaint I've heard about Honor Mansion's Secret Service, aside from the fact that it's a bit long, but I think you can say that about most James Bond movies. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Most of them are pretty bloated. Um... Uh, or Blofelded, but uh, oh God. that's barely a joke. Uh, but a lot of people have just said, if it wasn't for Lazenby, this might be the best Bond movie. Mm. Which I think there's something to that. I think Lazenby is an okay Bond, but I feel like he hadn't come into his own as an actor yet, mm. at the very least. And he doesn't really have that sort of confidence you want from this kind of world-changing action hero. And they didn't have that swagger that I think the better Bonds have in a variety of different ways. So... Um, it's still very good, though. I, I actually didn't put any Bond movies on my list. Okay. Uh, because... because the, 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 no matter how you slice it, the better ones aren't hovering around number eight. Typically, no. Like I, I, When I decided that for the sake of clarity and consistency, I'm going to go off the movies that are considered official that were made by the same people, Okay. Uh, that means that I was stuck with Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. Live and Let Die is a lot of really entertaining stuff in it. I love when uh, Roger Moore like jumps on a bunch of snapping crocodiles. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Stupid, that, it, but it's very fun. It also has the dumb uh, Smokey and the Bandit character in it. Terrible uh, Smokey and the Bandit character. It, it, Jesus. It, it, Before lot. Smokey and the Bandit, by the way, it's like it's like Bond invented that Smokey mm. and the Bandit stole it. It's, yeah, it's Weird. a little odd. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's like straightforwardly racist in certain scenes. The, and, the, the uh, plot of the movie is that like literally every person of color in the film, which is a lot of people, like the whole world is in on this like evil conspiracy. Like the mm. beginning of the movie is someone being killed in New Orleans and every single human being in a giant parade is in on it to kill one person. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty fucked up. Actually. There's a lot wrong with that movie. And, and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't in good conscience put that on a list of the best of anything, mm. even though it certainly has camp value. Yeah. 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 Kato is really cool until you get to that stupid death scene. That is. scene is ridiculous. They, they, so stupid. They, inf- they literally inflate him like a balloon, like in a Scooby-Doo cartoon. I know. It's, it's- absolutely absurd. Uh, uh, so I couldn't put that on there. If I had allowed myself to, to bend the rules, and I just mm. didn't, I probably would have put Diamonds Are Forever because I think that one's a little underrated. It's one of the dumb ones, but it yeah. doesn't pretend not to be. And it's a very entertaining dumb one. You can see James Bond like in a car chase in a lunar rover, which is just hilarious. Um not on, not in space either. Just in the desert, just fucking around because they were like faking the moonlighting. No, yeah, it's so crazy. Um, but on Mexico is is rock solid, and yeah, if you smooth over the numbers a little bit, it's totally a great pick. Um, all right, uh, my number eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I already picked 
uh, one horror movie. I might as well go for the second one on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's the only other like serious horror movie, or serious as in like definitely belongs in the horror section uh-huh. uh, on my list. Uh, and that is the eighth Freddy Krueger movie. No, not the remake. Okay. Because what happened was we had Nightmare on Elm Street, classic. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, highly underrated. Mm. Nightmare on Elm Street. Reclaimed a cult. Reclaimed a cult. Thank goodness. It's a really good movie. I think it's a really good horror movie. Bends the rules, but who cares? Uh, Dream Warriors, a lot of fun. Not one of my favorites, but it's really fun. It's more an action movie. Like, the the first half is like a good, solid horror movie. Yeah. And then they turn it into an action movie at the end, which a lot of people find really exhilarating. I think I I would have preferred it was scarier. But, you know. You have two options. That's just me. I I prefer horror over action. It's all about empowering teenagers to, like, deal with their trauma, which is a good idea for a Freddy Krueger movie. Mm. Uh, It's one of those movies where I know some people actually get frustrated with it today because they're used to superhero movies where you get the superhero for the whole time Mm. and the actual dream. Warriors of the title where the people have dream powers and fight Freddy on his own turf. Uh, that doesn't show up until the last act. Yeah. And a lot of them get dispatched pretty quick. Bit of a letdown, but still very, very fun. Four and five, I think, are pretty interchangeable. Four is better than five because five makes no sense, but it's basically. Like, like there's not even a story. Uh, it's so stupid. Yeah. But uh, there's some good kills and they're kind of fun to watch. Six is a dumb cartoon. It's a fun cartoon, but it's a dumb cartoon. West- I would rather watch six than five. I'll that, say that. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, Every day of the week. It, it's terrible, but I'd rather watch that, that one. Dream Child is awful. <laughs> uh, and then uh, you get Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is at least on par, I think, with the original. I just, it's so fucking brilliant, the way that Wes Craven takes the, what if Freddy Krueger was real? Like, mm. that should be stupid. It's, it's one of the best movies it's, of the 90s. It's, so, it's the best film in the series. Um, I, I th- I, for me, I have to put it at number two because you can't have it without the first one. Fair. So yeah. for me, I always have to give the edge of the original, but it's up. It's neck and neck. Hmm. And then, yeah, there was a remake. But in the middle, we had Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> Good pick. Which I, I actually didn't think about this one because I was thinking it as yeah, it was kind of debatable because I'm not sure where it falls in either series. And it turns out it falls like they X over, right? So. Yeah, pretty tidily. I think uh, I think it works where uh, this takes place after Jason goes to hell. Hmm. But uh, uh, and, before and, he goes to space, and before he goes to space, in fact, the reason why Jason went to space and Jason X is because uh, they needed to get out of the way of Freddy versus Jason, but they had plenty of time to make another movie. So they said, okay, we'll do like this sort of future thing, like a totally different film. Jason X is very fun, by the way. Um, David Cronenberg's in it. <laughs> no, he's, he gets to be killed by Jason. How cool is that? Uh, there's there's not a lot of like horror filmmakers who've been killed by horror monsters, but David Cronenberg's been killed by Jason Voorhees. Uh, John Waters isn't a horror filmmaker, but he was killed by Chucky, so that's cool. And, and he loved that. Of course he did. He, not only did he get to get killed by Chucky, but he got to badmouth Alvin of the Chipmunks. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, he's in whichever one. Uh, he's in chi- Seed of Chucky. Chipwrecked. Seed, seed of Alvin. Oh, he was in Chipwrecked. Yeah, he was. I on... thought he was saying he was like a line in, in no, he... Seed of Chucky where you're like, oh no, he's actually no, he, in Chipwrecked? He, he sits next to Alvin in oh Chipwrecked. Oh god, that's we- I did not know that. <laughs> John Waters I thought you were saying something movie. I kind of vaguely forgot. No, oh, John Waters no. is in one of the Chipmunks movies. Oh my uh, god, that's so. What kid is gonna get that? Well, and, what adult taking their kid to that movie is and, gonna get and, that? And, like, and, and Alvin's like this little animated critter on the, the seat next to him, and John Waters is like, "You, you need to behave more politely." And Alvin, Alvin like turns to him and says, "Hey, I saw pink flamingos." 
Yeah, like all the kids in the audience saw pink flamingos. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Alvin says in an Alvin the Chipmunks mm. movie that he saw the movie Pink Flamingos. Yes, Alvin has watched Pink Flamingos. Okay, I take it all back. Chipwrecked is one of the best movies ever made. I was wrong. Sight unseen definitely belongs on that list. Maybe in the low end of the hundreds, but it's in there. But if John Waters is playing himself, well, I guess he doesn't play himself in, in Seat of Chucky. No, he doesn't. He's he like plays a, a paparazzo. Yeah, he's a, he's a reporter. Yeah. Damn it. Ah, what a great crossover that would have been. <laughs> the Chipmunks and Chucky. <laughs> but in any case, Freddy vs. Jason was one of those movies where people have been kind of like talking about it for a while. Who'd win in a fight? Freddy vs. Like, Jason. And, and, and a decade after we wanted to see it, they finally made the movie. <laughs> well, there were, di- there were difficulties with the rights. They're owned by different studios and then yeah. shit happened. And they went through like a million different drafts of this thing. Apparently there was one where there was actually going to... The fight was actually going to be in a boxing arena in hell. Kind of want to see that, that too. That but... fine. Why? That's not too far afield from some of the stuff we've seen in other Freddy movies. But I actually argue, at least until like Avengers Endgame came along, and maybe even then, Freddy vs. Jason is maybe the ultimate fan, fan service movie. It gives yeah. you everything it, you okay. want out of a Freddy vs. Jason movie. Because all of the conver- and they I think they were paying attention because the conversations around the hard nuts who wanted to see oh, Freddy and Jason in the ring together. It's like, well, who would win in a fight? Well, are they awake or are they asleep? Yeah. We get both. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get, because if he's if they're if Jason's asleep, Freddy has the upper hand, and there's this whole big section of Freddy doing his Just whole trashing like trashing Jason in the dream world. Yeah. yeah. But here's the thing. The uh the kids who are all caught up in this because what happens is the setup's a little belabored but it works it's, where it, you know what it's fine it's fine it's fine it's it just this it's, weird wonderful adolescent comic the, book logic the, I, the idea is that in order to fight freddy krueger the adults of wait what's the freddy krueger town uh, uh springwood 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 illinois i almost said yeah. haddonfield and i knew that was wrong the adults in springwood decided to erase all knowledge of him oh. because kids can't dream about somebody they don't know about Mm. Not the worst logic ever. Well, and it, and it also feeds into something that was introduced in New Nightmare, mm. in that uh, Freddy only gets power as a myth. Mm-hmm. So if he's if the myth goes away, then he's powerless. He, yeah, he has no power. So what happens is Freddy ends up going into Jason Voorhees's dreams, and he sends him to Springwood to start killing people, which will in turn. Again, a bit belabored, but it works. Get people looking into the history of Springwood and make people interested in Freddy Krueger again. And so now all these kids think that Freddy Krueger is killing people when it's actually Jason Voorhees. And just as Freddy Krueger gets his powers back, he realizes that Jason isn't stopping and now he's killing everyone I wanted to kill. Mm. And now they have to fight each other. (laughs) Over who gets to kill teenagers. (laughs) Awesome. And what the kids realize is that Freddy Krueger is way more powerful than Jason. So if they want to survive, they have to help Jason kill Freddy Krueger and then figure out some way to stop Jason. <laughs> That's great. That's so much fun. The second half of the movie, the first half is a pretty good Jason movie and a pretty good Freddy Krueger movie. There's lots of fun kills, lots of fun characters. It's really well shot. Ronnie, you did it. Mm. The guy who did uh, Bride of Chucky. Bride of Chucky. Yeah. Awesome director. Um, and then the second half, it's just Fre- Freddy versus Jason for like half a movie. Oh. Freddy gets the upper hand in the dream world. Jason gets the upper hand at Camp Crystal Lake. They fight each other to the death. It's Great. Some of the stuff doesn't work. Uh, there's like some odd characterizations and some of Freddy's dialogue is just offensive and annoying. But man, is this one hit the spot for the most part. It's yeah, so good. It, it is good. And I, I, I'm ashamed that I didn't include it on my list. That's okay. Yeah. Um, 
there's still plenty of fight movies. I think by the time you get to the eighth movie, all you can think to do is like have people fight each other. Kind of. Like, either either they're having sex or they're fighting each other, and that's <laughs> that's all you got. Yeah. Uh, who's gonna have an affair with whom, and who's gonna fight and kill somebody? Well, in how, a how do you, well? How do you raise the stakes? Yeah. You raise the stakes dramatically. You raise the stakes yeah. action wise. So why not have the ultimate fighter, the ultimate wrestler who has fought fought everybody, uh-huh. uh, El Santo. Oh. every monster in the world. Oh, I love you so much. Which, one, which one's number eight? Uh, the eighth film was Santo in the Wax Museum. Oh, I haven't seen this one. It, you know what? I haven't seen it for a while, so I might okay. be misremembering it, which I think is okay for luchador films. Uh, what are For people who aren't familiar, describe the luchador film. Oh, oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Lucha Libre, free wrestling, is... Uh, national pastime in Mexico. And uh, it there's a, a long uh, storied history that uh, people much smarter than me have written about. But it uh, essentially involves masked, masked wrestlers who have mm-hmm. these sort of folk hero identities. And a lot of what we see in modern American televised wrestling was kind of born on the mats in Mexico. Mm-hmm. This, uh, you know, the, the idea of a face and a heel. Yeah, larger or, than life know, characters. Or, or, drama. A, a technical, yeah. a rudo. And... Uh, yeah, there was a lot of these dramas, and they'd start wearing more and more ostentatious costumes, and their identities were secret, hence the masks. That was a big part of it. There was a, right. a kind of a, a superhero element to that. And they made and, a ton of movies. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm, a I'm, lot. I'm actually, I'm trying to look up. There are like, dozens of Santo and Blue Demon movies. D- literally dozens. They, like, churned yeah. them out. And the, one of the fun things about watching, uh, like, the Santo movies is uh, the character never takes off their mask, which mm. is fine. But they also do just regular everyday stuff in it. Like you'll just see like Santa like hanging around his apartment, like goes, playing chess he in goes his mask. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, there is there kind is kind of a weird, surreal, there is delightful no, thing. There is no cooler motherfucker <laughs> than El Santo in his mask in a tweed suit holding a martini at a party, and it's the most natural thing yeah, in the world. Nobody's commenting, yeah. nobody thinks it's weird. <laughs> it's playing, just yeah, it's Santo. They're playing Martin Denny, he's drinking something really strong. He's <laughs> got, you know, young woman under his arm and then he gets in a sports car with the mask and the yeah. suit on it's great just a wonderful power mm. fantasy of just being cool but then yeah then of course it gets like really silly and there's like a sense of humor to it but you can never tell how serious the movies are taking themselves because they're so like broad and strange yeah there's a wonderful scene where Santo and, and Blue Demon have to pose as doctors in this movie in wax not, museum? Not, not in wax okay. museum just in one of the movies and yeah. they put on like the scrubs and the hats but they leave their masks on <laughs> Well, like, listen, they, listen. They, that could be any wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I love it. I love. I love movies about superheroes or, or TV shows superheroes yeah. where like the secret identity is so blindingly obvious. There was an animated series in the '60s or '70s called Super President about the president who's also a superhero named Super President. Who could he be? <laughs> That's one of my favorite things. Keep waiting for someone to bring that back. So tell me about Wax Museum. Uh, Wax Museum, uh, the the story. There, um, I, and I had to, I even had to look it up. There's uh, some kidnappings. A lot they blur they, after a while. Yeah, the series yeah. goes on this long. It happens. And yeah, there's like 25 El Santo movies. You watch them all. It doesn't really matter. Uh, watch watch El Santo y Blue Demon contra los monstruos. Uh, Santo and Blue Demon versus the monsters. That's the one I've seen the most. That's, that's yeah, a fun one because that's the one where they uh, the two wrestlers fight Dracula and the Mummy and Frankenstein's monster and something they made up just for the movie. This little creature with the big brain isn't the wolfman um, in that or am i thinking of a different movie? and the wolfman's in it okay yeah, yeah 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 awesome frankenstein is their chauffeur he doesn't do much in the movie <laughs> 
And, and just like in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, there's a big fight. The wrestlers flee, and then the mummy kind of drags along <laughs> through the frame afterwards, like in a Jim Jarmusch film. Like, the mummy doesn't actually do a whole lot either. You know, like the mummy in all those Jim Jarmusch films. Yeah. He made, a, he made a zombie film. He I, did. I wouldn't put a mummy he, past that guy. You, you know what? He did. You're he right. made a vampire and, movie and a zombie movie. Yeah. I'm waiting for the trilogy to continue. And I love his vampire movie and I hate his zombie movie. I think his zombie movie is very funny. His vampire movie is amazing, <laughs> though. I, I couldn't stand the I don't get it. So I thought bad. you would like it so much. I loved that movie. Oh, gosh. Anyway, Wax Museum. Uh, wax museum, and there's a wax museum. Is it is it like the Vincent Price uh, House of Wax? Well, or? No, no, there's some sort of plot to use the the bodies of the kidnappings in a wax museum to like resurrect wax monsters and have them take over the world. Oh, it's, so it's, it's kind of like it's got a little bit like Waxwork, a little bit like Waxwork. Yeah, Waxwork is a uh, there are two really awesome horror movies called Waxwork, Waxwork One and Waxwork Two, and uh, the first one is about pe- kids who go to a wax museum and when you step into the display, you're actually in the wax story yeah. mm-hmm. and it's all gruesome tales of horror and death second one they get trapped in god's nintendo mm. that's an actual line of dialogue we're in god's nintendo <laughs> and he's just going from level to level doing crazy shit so they end up in a black and white haunted house they end up in the middle ages it's great bruce <laughs> really campbell fun. has a wonderful scene in that movie. bruce campbell's hilarious in that movie holy shit <laughs> but yeah he's in a wax museum and they're wax monsters and, and i guess he fights why, and yeah he wrestles monsters that's all you need to... You Done! Know, it it didn't, really ma- didn't really matter which Santo film it was, really. There was part eight. Just watch any of the El Santo movies. They're all equally great slash bad slash great. Nice. Okay, well, uh, I guess uh, moving on. Uh, you already teased this, but uh, yeah, one of my favorite movie franchises is the Zatoichi films. All right. Zatoichi uh, is uh, a blind samurai who uh, travels around from film to film in a very Western uh, sort of storytelling uh, uh, tradition. Hmm. Uh, every single movie, Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, just goes to a different town, ends up in different shit, and uh, saves the day. He's a he's a absolutely brilliant sword fighter. His cane is secretly a sword, and he's you know a maestro with it. Mm. Uh, he's also a masseuse. Which how many superheroes will also give you a great back rub? Zatoichi, I think he's. Can you imagine Batman giving a back rub? I have trouble. He'd probably be really good at it, oh. but Zatoichi. He's the maestro of backgrounds. I, I, I could mention some slash fiction. But... Um, well, that's not canon. Uh, and then also Zatoichi is a awesome gambler because he can like hear the dice and he knows like when, they're, when he knows when he's being cheated, which happens in almost every movie and is a great thing around it. But yeah, basically every movie goes to a new place, gets embroiled in local strife fights his way out of it. There's dozens. There's 26 movies that were made from 1962 to 1989 mm. there was also a fi- uh, a five-year television series all of those films starred the same guy uh shintaro katsu mm. as zatoichi and then in the early 2000s there's a really good like remake uh it's 2003 that one came yeah, out. Uh, yeah. Re- uh directed Bita and Takeshi, starring yeah. uh, bita takashi that movie's fucking amazing too the eighth movie is, like every other Zatoichi uh, movie I've ever seen, a really cool samurai film. Uh, the eighth movie is called Fight, Zatoichi, Fight! Yes! Uh, and the plot is uh, Zatoichi, at the beginning of the movie, and there really isn't a lot of explanation for it, he's on the run from hired killers. He is just evading these hired killers, wandering from place to place, and at one point... Guys uh, who uh, run around uh, with a palanquin, which is one of those, like, sort of you sit in a box and people, like, carry sticks and they carry you as you sit. Um, They offer him a deal on a palanquin because he's a blind man. And he's like, okay, cool. And then he sees a a woman with her baby walking along and she, like, sprains her ankle. And so he gives her 
his ride. Unfortunately, the bad guys saw Ichi go in there, and so they immediately stab into the palanquin and kill the mom. And fortunately, the baby's okay, and Zatoichi feels like he's responsible for this. So he has to take the baby 65 miles on foot to find the kid's dad while he's being hunted by all these bad guys. And that's the movie. And over time, yeah, it's one of those stories where, you know, a tough hero, like, has to take care of a baby. Jason Statham did this in uh, Fate of the Furious mm. as well. Um, and his heart gets warmed by it. But you, it actually feels more important here. It feels more relevant here. I love, like, there's a scene, a really beautiful scene where Zatoichi is carrying the baby and he's trying to talk to it and he doesn't know how to handle babies. And he walks past a woman who is singing to her own infant mm -hmm. and he pauses and just the whole scene is just him standing there long enough that he can learn a lullaby to sing to this baby. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. And then the action's amazing. There's a scene right shortly after that where uh, Ichi has to uh, you know change the baby's diaper. Yeah. It's that thing you got to do it's on the regular. And he's changing the diaper, and there's this really amazing, like, low-angle camera shot of him, like, changing the diaper while, like, six guys with swords, like, lurk up behind Ichi so quietly you can't hear it in the audience. And then he whips out a sword over the baby and kills, like, three guys. <laughs> and then he kills, like, three more. And then it's just, like, the whole room is filled with dead bodies, but he's still got to finish changing the baby's diaper. Um... And it all ends with uh, people who decide that the the thing with Ichi and the reason why uh, he is such a great sword fighter is because of his tremendous hearing. We mm. need to find a way around that. And so they surround him with like an army of guys on torches that are loud enough en masse mm. that they're like sort of discombobulating him. And he's got to find a way to fight this like a, a dozen people with torches and swords. Awesome! Anyway, Zatoichi is an awesome series of films. They're currently all available on Criterion, although I don't think they have the TV series and the Takashi film, but the main series is all available on Criterion. Okay. Um, you should definitely check it out if you haven't already. There really isn't a bum one in the bunch. Uh, I, I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen most, and they're, they're all really, really fun. Um, my favorite is probably Zatoichi's Cane Sword, which is, mm. like I think, number like 16. In which uh, Zatoichi finds out that his sword has a flaw in it, and if he uses it one more time, it'll break and be useless. Yeah. So he has to find a way to do all of his usual Zatoichi stuff. And by like 16 films, you know the formula. He has to find a way to do all his usual Zatoichi stuff without killing anybody. Mm. Which is great. It would be yeah. like if you do a Punisher movie where he wasn't allowed to kill anybody until the last scene. And if he did, he knew he would die right afterwards. <laughs> great ending to this movie, by the way. It's so fucking cool. Um, so anyway, Zatoichi, highly recommended. Fight Zatoichi, fight. Really cool flick. I, I haven't seen that one. Okay. I've only seen three or four Zatoichi movies. Okay. And uh, it's it's one that I want to catch up with. Yeah. We watched I, I know a, it's like a half-off Criterion sale, and if I can... If I can even cult, then, it's like 150 Well, it's I was about to say, if, if I can cult... My birthday's coming up, so if I can cult together, like, birthday money, <laughs> maybe, I'll, uh, maybe I'll get myself the Zatoichi box set and finally watch all of those things. It's really cool stuff. Anyway, moving on. Um, I'm going to choose Ebida, Horror of the Deep. Okay, I remember thinking to myself, oh, Whitney's going to put a Godzilla movie on here. Yes, I and am. Then I, and then I saw that the movie that was the eighth in the series was Ebira, Horror of the Deep, and I thought, maybe he won't. It's <laughs> well, like, don't like this movie. Well, I, I, I want to defend this movie. That's why I included it okay. on the list. I think uh, a lot of people first became familiar with Ebira, the Horror of the Deep, when it was called Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. And, or, and there's the smog monster, wasn't it? There's also a smog monster. That's a different movie. That's a different movie. My bad. Uh, Godzilla, or what was it? What was the uh, the American title? 
I think it was Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. I think, well, yeah, it was... Um, yeah. It, it had a different title in America. And Wasn't the, this originally supposed to be a King Kong movie, too? No, 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 no. What am I thinking um, of? I'm, like, I'm, I'm not exactly there's sure. There's like one was... where they were thinking about doing a King Kong movie, and then they couldn't, and they had to put Godzilla in. Oh, uh, there was... Okay, there, there was uh, Godzilla versus King Kong has a really weird conceit that uh, King Kong, when he is like shocked by electrical wires, he gets more powerful. Mm. Like he, he got, does his like sort of Hulk Hogan hulking out King Kong sort which, of thing, which gives him the advantage he needs to actually hold his own with Godzilla, who can breathe fire. Exactly. So it makes so, sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and Godzilla, who's weak against power lines. Yeah. Oh no, power lines. Uh, <laughs> That's a conceit that was held over from a, a Godzilla versus Frankenstein movie yeah. that they were conceiving for a long while that never actually came to be. And uh, that ended up splitting off into two different movies. The Godzilla part, uh, they kept some conceits when they put King Kong into the movie. And since there was already a script, they the idea that a monster stumbling into power lines and becoming more powerful makes a lot of sense when that thing is Frankenstein, a thing that was brought to life with electricity. Yeah. Uh, and, Not so much when it's Kong. And the other film uh, <laughs> split off into something called War of the Gargantuas, which was just like two 50-foot Frankensteins fighting each other. Okay. And that's as cool as it sounds, by the way. Okay, I, I just confirmed mm. this. Uh, yeah. The working title for Edward Horror of the Deep, originally... Mm. Before it went to Toho, it was at Rankin Bass, and the script was called Operation Robinson Crusoe, King Kong versus Ebira. Okay. So, so then Toho bought it, and then they changed they it just, to Godzilla. They, they essentially just took Ebira out of the movie and put him in the in a Godzilla movie. Basically, as near as I can tell. Or hit him, her, it, whatever. Uh, Ebera is a giant lobster uh, that lives in the water. And I think the, the reason people are kind of down on Ebera, Horror of the Deep, is because they're familiar with the American version. Specifically, the American version they saw in Mystery Science Theater 3000. Which is quite bad. Which was edited and then edited down again for the show, and... Yeah, the, the story doesn't make a lot of sense. The dubbing is really, really bad. Well, it's about kept... treasure hunters. Isn't it kind of like the Five Bloods, but then they end up fighting Godzilla? Like, these guys <laughs> go to this island where there's, like, treasure or diamonds or something from, mm. like, World War II. Isn't that the plot? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the one you're thinking And I'm of. watching this movie, and I'm just like, are we going to get to any monsters? And it feels like it takes forever to get there. Well, it, it's it's also a bit of a departure from the Godzilla movies. But by the time they get there... These bankrupt. What would happen if a bunch of criminals fled and they landed up on a monster island? That's yeah. that's the plot. That's not a bad idea for a Godzilla movie. And it turns out there's also an evil lobster yeah. that uh, a lot of that bad guys have been using drugs to keep under control, and they figure like ways that they can sort of herd this giant lobster. Yeah, I think I remember uh, this wrong. There was a bank robber. I think that's what it was. Yeah, like a that's bank robber. Yeah, yeah. crazy. That treasure hunter is a bank robber. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, it's got this treasure hunting vibe because I got to go to an island. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, there's there's like bad guys who are enslaving the natives, and they hope the monsters will uh, awaken and and free them. Mothra is there as well, and she she ends up doing doing some very good things. And this is a maybe a turning point for Godzilla when we hmm. finally uh, just accepted that Godzilla was our protector. Yeah. He, like, Godzilla's the hero now. He yeah, wasn't for Godzilla he was, slash was, he wasn't for a long time. Godzilla was uh, the like the clear cut villain for at least the first three films. Yeah. Uh, kind of a reluctant uh, helper for the next two, and then by the time or for a few more, and by the time we got to this film, it's like okay, Godzilla yeah. is here to help us. Yeah, Godzilla is a bouncer. God, <laughs> Godzilla is yeah. out of Japan. Can you, giant monster. Can I can I see your ID? <laughs> Lobster, huh? We got we got a Godzilla. We're good. We got a Godzilla and a Mothra. I've, I've uh, 
<laughs> I've written extensively about the Godzilla movies, and my the analogy I frequently go to is Godzilla as, as the world's bouncer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, like, also he used to be, like, a roadie for Metallica. Like, he actually has some cred. By the time we get late in the series, it's like, he's kind of like this wizened old guy. He's got, like, a scar. Yeah, fuck, I got in a fight in a mosh pit. Uh... <laughs> Whereas uh, when by the time we got to like the American Godzilla, it's like, I, hey, man, let's get some monster and go to a Nickelback concert. And the old Godzilla's like, oh, this fucker again. It's like, <laughs> look, we've told you to get out before. <laughs> no, no, I get a movie now. No, you don't. This is my series. This is my bar. You get out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I, and I appreciate Eb- Eber Ahar of the Deep. I think there's some good morals to the original Japanese version. Don't watch the American version. Fair enough. The American, the original Japanese version is now more widely I've available. Nev- I've in never the seen States. the dubbed version. I've mm. never seen the subtitle version. I've only seen the dubbed version. Yeah, Criterion put it out. Okay. So it's, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I haven't seen the original un un. I think Ebera unfucked with version. I think uh, Ebera the Horror of the Deep is is on the Criterion channel. Um, it was. Mm. No, no, it's hard to keep track sometimes. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's move on. And now we're getting into the ones where. Um, like I feel very strongly about all of these because they're all really, really good movies. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't I think I, I'm at a point now where like I think Fight Side to Ichi Fight is a very, very good samurai movie. All right. uh, I think Freddy vs. Jason is pretty darn great for what it is. Jason Takes Manhattan is fun. Fate and the Furious is fun. We're getting to the movies right now that I think are legit good movies. Hmm. Uh, and I'm going to start with uh, w- w- the franchise that I think is maybe the quote-unquote great American franchise. Hmm. Uh, and that's Rocky. Okay. Rocky is... I love Rocky so much. I like the first Rocky a lot. Uh, you, don't like, you don't like the sequels very much? Uh, it's, it, they run hot and cold. Uh, fair enough. I think Rocky is remarkably consistent as a franchise. I, mm-hmm. I really do. I think... I, I actually have never seen all of five, but like all of the Rocky, all the other Rocky movies are either highly entertaining, Rocky 4, or really good. Rocky 1 through 3, 6, 7, mm-hmm. and 8. <laughs> They're all really, really good movies. I like Rocky. I like Rocky Balboa. Um, Those other ones are, like, they're really broad and corny. Well, Creed isn't corny. But yeah, and then then Creed. And Creed and Creed 2 aren't as corny. No, Creed and Creed 2 are really rock solid, Creed 2 is a a little cornier than Creed. A smidge, but I actually think it works. And that's Creed 2 is the eighth film in the series, so let's talk about that. So we had Rocky Balboa is, you know, this young punk from uh, uh, Philadelphia... Not much of a boxer, honestly, but he lucks into a chance to fight the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed, and he takes his training so seriously and he goes through so much personal growth that he is able to go the distance and actually only lose by decision. Yeah. Hell of a story. Rocky One is the great sports movie. I will stand by that. Nearly perfect in every way. I love that film. I appreciate that Rocky Two is about what happens after you have a success story, which is not always very well dramatized. Yeah, and it's about trying to prove that you weren't, you didn't just get a lucky shot. Mm-hmm. Like you actually continue to have worth beyond that. That's a good story. Rocky Three is about what happens when a champion gets complacent. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I'm champion of the world now. I'm like, I got a wife and kids, and I just, yeah, he doesn't have anything to fight for anymore. So of course he fucking loses. He just doesn't have the drive, and he's got to get his drive back. Decent movie. Maybe not as necessary as the others, but quite good and also establishes like an ongoing friendship with Apollo Creed. Four is stupid. It's a stupid movie, and for many years I thought it wasn't a real film. It was a fake movie within a movie that happened to star Rocky Balboa as himself. 
Like, Which is a much better way of looking at that movie. And I still maintain that even though Creed 2 officially affirms that the events of Rocky IV happened, mm-hmm. that what happened in reality was way more grounded than what happened in Rocky IV. And Rocky IV is the movie that Rocky Balboa probably shouldn't have made about those events. And it's considered like one of the biggest turkeys of all time. And it's a mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, Rocky V, Rocky kind of lets boxing go. Uh, Rocky VI, he decides to have like one more match, even though he's way too old for it, mm. just to prove that he still got something. Really good movie. Creed was about how Apollo Creed's uh, uh, illegitimate son, uh, which is a terrible way to put it, actually, but mm. his son with someone other than his wife, mm. uh, tries to prove himself, make a name for himself, and Rocky becomes his trainer. Creed is fucking great. Creed, it, it, if you're going to go back to that same well, this was the best way to do it. Absolutely yeah. the best way to do it. Awesome movie. Ryan Coogler is the shit. Creed 2 is also fucking great. And what I like about it's Creed... It's not as good as Creed, no. but it's 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 also pretty good. It just doesn't... It can't have... It's like Rocky 2. It can't quite have the same impact as the mm. first story, but it's a really solid, smart continuation of what happens yeah. next. Well, and I really like the way that it manages to combine the leftover plot threads of Rocky 4, because it's what happens when Creed ends up fighting the son of Ivan Drago, who killed his father. Yeah. And after Rocky humiliated him in defeat... Um, their lives have been terrible, and now they're just he's just been training his son to fight in American boxing and be a creature of pure rage. Mm. And I actually really, really, I, I want him to, the, the name of the guy who plays Victor Drago. Uh, d- that guy deserves credit because he actually doesn't get like that much screen time, but I think he does a lot with it. Well, the scene between uh the young Drago and his father yeah. is uh, it's it's a brief scene, but it's really good about how. They like they actually have, they're the antagonists here. Yeah, and we learn that Drago is, he, like he doesn't feel guilt, but he does understand that what he did was really horrible. Mm-hmm. And he is essentially saying, "I know there's a place in me where a soul ought to be. I just don't know what to fill it with other than you." Yeah, and like that's that's he only has like one scene, scene with Rocky, yeah, yeah. but it's really really good. But mm. I love all the scenes with him and his son, who's played by uh, Florian Montano. Uh, or uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but uh, this this guy has ever since he was like a little kid, his mom left them because his dad wasn't a champion. Yeah, and he didn't really know his mom. And Bridget Nielsen has like two scenes in this movie where it's just destroying this kid to know that his mom's love comes at a higher price than he can pay. Mm. And. The scene, like, it, it, there's this amazing bit towards the end of the movie where, you know, in, like, those performance movies or fight movies or sports movies where someone's not doing great and then all of a sudden they see their estranged father or mother in the stands mm-hmm. and they realize they've got support and then they hit a home run or whatever? Mm. Exact opposite of that scene <laughs> happens in Creed 2. It's heartbreaking. And even though this guy is clearly the antagonist, he's clearly, like, in the wrong here. He's coming at this whole thing from a bad place. Mm. I felt bad for him. This is a really well-written sports movie in which, you know, Adonis Creed has to deal with the idea of um, a legacy about why he fights, what he has to fight for now that he's actually heavyweight champion of the world and things are going his way. Um, It's really smart and well done and well shot. And I really, really like it a lot. Uh, It doesn't get enough credit. I think it was directed by Stephen Capel jr. Um, who, this is kind of his big thing, but man, we need to see more of him because this movie was great. Um, it was co-written by Jewel Taylor and Sylvester Stallone. And uh, yeah, 
it's a really worthy follow-up to Creed. I like this movie a lot. And I took me a I actually only saw it for this list. I was like, I never got around to Creed 2. I need to get around to Creed 2. I am so fucking glad I finally got around to Creed 2. It's awesome. It, it's a very good film. Yeah. Uh, what I, I know, something I appreciate about Creed 2 is that uh, Rocky's story is finally, finally taking a backseat to this series. Yeah. Like, well, he was a, he was definitely a supporting character in in Creed, but, but he was his, a major supporting. He was a major supporting yeah. character. He was the coach. It was all you know, yeah. ultimately a lot about his plight and the future of Rocky and yeah. how his legacy would be remembered. And I think Creed Two is an important thing that I understand that the the two Creed movies are about sort of intergenerational legacies. Sure. But I feel like it's the one where the character got to start to find himself a little bit. Yeah. But which was That's the character was, of Adonis? You mean? Yeah, Adonis, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the main character. Yeah, uh, Creed. Where Creed finally got to, uh, like the whole idea of the first movie is how how do I outlive my father's legacy, Apollo mm-hmm. Creed, and yeah. and uh, now I'm just going to be. Well, he's repeating it without he, realizing. Yeah. Without he's becoming his father without exactly, trying exactly. to all, be all, all of all of that. I, and, I think uh, that's a really that's a hard thing to pull off. I think is how people fall into the same patterns that they know mm-hmm. are bad, and I think this movie is very very smart in showing how. Victor Drago is doing the exact same things wrong his father did. Adonis Creed is doing the exact same thing wrong that Apollo did. But it makes sense to them in the moment. Yeah. And how difficult it is and how you need support and love and wisdom in order to break out of that cycle. It's so good. Yeah. I th- but I feel like in Creed 2, he got to sort of start making his own decisions yeah. for the first time without concerning himself with a lot of this other intergenerational stuff, even though he's fighting the son of the man who killed yeah. his father. And he makes mistakes and yeah. he learns from them. That's a really important thing. For, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I think keeps the Rocky movies relevant, even though every single one should kind of boil down to, and then Rocky fights this guy, or then Creed fights this guy. Mm-hmm. But they've done a pretty great job of consistently finding a human story to tell through that competition mm-hmm. and why each successive chapter is also worth telling. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, Creed two uh, doesn't have credit. Fucking awesome. Let's move on. Hmm. What's your next? What's your um, fifth one? I guess. I, I, what do I want to talk about now? I want to talk about Fit to Kill. <laughs> ah, I knew you were gonna do it. Okay, yeah, let's um, do it. Uh, in in the mid eighties, a filmmaker named Andy Sedaris had a wonderful idea. I'm gonna make a spy movie. It's set in Hawaii. Yeah. So we got exotic locations. I have access to like jeeps and stuff and light wanes and cessnas so we got a lot of good uh, glory shots of airplanes and most importantly i have access to a lot of playboy playmates and penthouse pets and i'm going to ask them to be actors in my movie and run around with their clothes off a lot and shooting stuff and also shoot stuff and they're they're spy he- topless spy heroes in hawaii which really would have been a great title for the movie just call it yeah, topless spy heroes in hawaii would have been fine that, yeah. that movie is called malibu express it's okay yeah it's fine uh, he followed that up a few years later with a movie called Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which is one of the best movies ever made. Certainly one of the best cult movies. Mm. If you've never seen it, it's amazing. It's it's the diehard of B-movies. It is so great. He <laughs> managed to get all of like the cool action spy stuff, but also like decapitating razor frisbees yeah, and all, all rocket the... launchers that shoot flying like blow-up dolls yeah. and, I, and I, a killer snake. And there's, a, yeah, there's a snake that spreads cancer somehow. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's one of the elements. And... I forgot. That's totally a thing. And, and, oh and, it, and it attacks and somebody shoots its fangs off one by one. That's, 
Yeah, the, the blow up doll sequence. Like the, oh, you can find the blow amazing. up doll sequence on on YouTube, but mm. I, I, you know, I, I don't encourage you to find a clip show. I want you to watch the whole movie. You can yeah. find Hard the, Ticket to Hawaii. There are a few dry bit, bits yeah. in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, but they always lead to something amazing. So just keep watching; uh, it's great. Andy Sayers kept plugging away at that series until there were twelve movies in it, <laughs> <laughs> and they all have this the, pretty much the same premise. There's a bad guy who's running guns and or drugs or is trying to assassinate somebody, and this cadre of they don't even name the organization until the 12th film. <laughs> like, they talk about working for the governments, but they're not, like, FBI or CIA. It turns out they belong to an organization called Lethal. So, in retrospect, this uh, became known as the Lethal Ladies Series. And Lethal is an acronym. Yeah, L-E-T-H-A-L. Do you know what it's for? Oh, I used to know. I, okay. I, there was a time when I could name what Lethal stood for. Uh, no, and, and uh, Fit to Kill is the eighth film in the series. And by the time they got to the eighth film in the series, some characters had dropped out. We had Pat Morita come and go. We had uh, Eric Estrada come and go. Uh, <laughs> the fun thing about the Lethal Ladies series is actually how weirdly moral they are. Mm. They're very responsible. Uh, bad guys can become good guys, and but good guys never become bad guys. It's no. all this is a story that would ruin it. This is a story about redemption, and this is. <laughs> This is the first film that had Julie Strain in it. And Julie Strain is wonderful. I love Julie Strain. Yeah. She's just, uh, she was a penthouse pet. She's started a lot of like B movies. Uh, she, she's just tall and very, very striking. She's made a lot of appearances at comic book conventions. She even married one of the Ninja Turtle guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, she's has a wonderful sense of humor. She really overplays. She's like, if you combined Elvira with a wrestler, just Julie Strain is yeah. wonderful. And in this one, she gets to play a bad guy. She's like one of the evil killers. So you get to see her kind of really ham it up. And in the next movie, she's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's really well. What, what's the story? Who cares? A businessman is being chased and the lethal ladies have to chase them down. Uh, all of the, the wonderful things you've expected from this series come into play. Uh, there is a radio station on Hawaii where they do nothing but like really breathy sex talk and romantic music and sexual advice, but hidden in the show is like clues to the agents out in the field. It's like, be sure to go out there to station blue and find the bird in the nest or whatever it was. (laughs) Up next is another sex jazz piece, you know, (laughs) which is an awesome premise for a movie. It's fun. And they shot on Molokai, the least attractive uh, Hawaiian Island. It it, it really is. Yeah. (laughs) Been to Molokai. Molokai is. So it's, it's clearly like really cheap to shoot there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a delight. Mm. Um, so I, I, I actually haven't I haven't seen but, Fit to Kill, yeah. but I've seen a fair number of these, and they're great. Yeah, Hard, Hard Ticket to Hawaii is clearly the best one. Uh, they they never really match that again, but they run kind of really crazy. Um, there is there is this is one of the best really deals horrible. in home video history, as far as I'm concerned. Also, you can it's get like five bucks you, for twelve. It's, movies, it's so. currently ten bucks. Maybe you can. I think if you buy it used, you can get it for five. But Girls, Guns, and G Strings, the Andy Sedaris collection, mm. twelve films for ten dollars. Hmm. And if you buy it used, it's like five. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's such a treat. It is the absolute, like, just innocent sleaze. Yeah. The most innocent possible sleaze. Like, there's the, not this, a lot of, it's the there's not a lot of, of hate or anger in it or whatever. Yeah, it's this, just, we think the human body is neat. Like, that's it. That's um, all they've got, really. We think jacuzzis are a fun place to be topless. 
I suppose that's true. Yeah, like There's that wonderful scene at Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Oh, I found some diamonds. What are they? I don't know. Let's hit the jacuzzi and think about it. And the next scene, <laughs> they're topless in a jacuzzi, like facing the camera. So you get a nice you know, glory body shot because these are models. They're used to posing. So they're posing in the it, topless in a, at a hot tub, looking at diamonds saying, hmm, these are really interesting. I think we need to figure out the mystery of these diamonds. <laughs> it's like the corniest stuff. <laughs> they're just... Ah, bless them. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. They, there's nothing, like, hateful or ugly about them. There's the kinds of things that you might see, like, late night on Skinamax back in the day. Mm. But, yeah, there's no there's no violence. There's no rage in the yeah. innocent areas. It, yeah, there's violence violence, but it all comes from a place of dopey fun. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're highly recommended. Okay, well, speaking of crass yuck yucks, um, I always like it when a franchise goes on long enough, it starts to dip into self-parody. Mm. Uh, it's very rare that they do it well. And we've already mentioned that like Wes Craven's new Nightmare did a really, really yeah. great job of being self-reflexive, for example. Mm. But uh, typically by the time characters and movies are talking about, oh, we're we doing this again, mm. you're sort of mad because like, yeah, you've only done it eight times. <laughs> like, I want to see you do it more. Do it again. I liked it. It's a formula. I don't... There's like a bit in Step Up All In, which is not an unentertaining <laughs> movie, where Moose, by the way, the Step Up movies are the best franchise ever, and I'm mad we haven't gotten to number eight yet, But because uh, that gotten, totally would have automatically been on the we list. We've got six and a TV series. We're, we're yeah. doing pretty good. We're okay. We're okay, but I'm, it stalled out, and I'm mad. I want more. Yeah. So, in any case, but in Step Up 5, Step Up All In, mm. uh, that's the one where it's kind of like the Fast and Furious, where they get characters from all of the previous movies mm. to come together for one big dance group. Yeah. And Great idea, just doesn't quite nail the tone the entire time, yeah. but it's still fun. But there's a bit where two characters from previous movies who had never met each other before meet, and they immediately go into a dance-off. And Moose, the secret star of the franchise, uh, Moose just says, why does everything have to be a dance fight with you people? And I'm just like, because that's the premise of the movie, Moose. <laughs> that's that's why we're here. That's the world you live in, Moose. That's what we want. Don't complain about it. However, I don't think I can't think of a single other movie franchise that hit an eighth movie... Mm. And got self-reflexive at that time and nailed it the way that Deadpool did. Deadpool's on my list, too. Deadpool is fucking great. Okay, so Deadpool, obviously, I think you know Deadpool by now, but let's do a quick primer. The X-Men movies, all right, were the first X-Men movie had been like in and out of development since the 80s when the mm -hmm. X-Men was like the biggest selling comic book. Um, it wasn't until the success of the movie Blade that people started to look at Marvel comics really seriously for fodder for films. Well, they were being looked at a lot, but studios weren't really weren't willing to pony up the money it would take to film something like that. Well, the problem is I that... I think a, a lot of uh, properties didn't have a lot of cultural traction yet. A lot of them did. And the uh, ones that did were kind of unfilmable. Like, yeah. there was a thought that, like, Spider-Man, how can you make web-swinging look cool without CGI, which we don't have yet? Or, or, like, really dangerous stunts that are just not possible in yeah. reality. And the various films that had been released that were based on Marvel properties were typically not hits. Howard the Duck was a famous bomb. Mm. Uh, Red Sonia, which wasn't officially labeled as a Marvel movie, but is very specifically based on the Marvel version of that character. Mm. That wasn't a hit. Uh, Captain America barely got released. Fantastic Four didn't get released, the original Roger Corman version. Uh, and Men in Black was a huge hit, but it wasn't labeled a Marvel comic. That was an independent label that Marvel acquired. Technically, it's a Marvel movie, but no one was like, ooh, what a great Marvel movie. So it was Blade, which just felt like a standalone thing. Mm. And that becoming a big hit that made people go, oh, well, let's let's 
put the gas on uh, some of these other Marvel projects. Let's try to make some of them. And so X-Men was one of the first that came out. And X-Men was basically just, can this work? Can mm. we take this Marvel concept, put it in a movie and get away with it? Can we make people take it seriously? And also, and this is something that hadn't really been done before, can we make a superhero team movie? Yeah. Like a seriously, like we're going to take it seriously. Can, can we, is there a way well, to make sure we divvy up the, the time enough that it feels like a proper film and that's that, about a superhero team? And that's uh, the, the strength of X-Men is you have yeah. a bunch of very different characters who interplay off one another. And yeah, it's, it's so a, you, you might have one you like more than others, mm-hmm. but I, I think it was a mistake to start cording them off and have solo films. I, I think There's, arguably that's true. Um, the mm-hmm. first X-Men film, it's, ba- it's basically a proof of concept. That's fun. The, the, it, no, it has a good steely aesthetic. They, yeah. they, they pushed out something new and different. I guess my point is that the plot of the movie is kind of dorky. Oh, we're going to turn the Statue of Liberty into a mutant-making machine. Like but, That's kind of stupid. It's just an what, excuse to, whatever. It's just an excuse <laughs> to con- test out the characters yeah. and the concept. X2 worked really, really well. X3 was really, really stupid. They followed that up with X, uh, Wolverine, uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, which... Not a bad idea, but does not really work. It's uh-huh. more watchable than I think people give it credit for, but it's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of like just ridiculous bit- bits in it. X-Men First Class went kind of back to bare bones basics. What would it have been like setting this up in the 60s? Very stylish and fun. The cast is, is great. Yeah, which is when the comics came out. Yeah, so arg- yeah, arguably the best proper X-Men movie. It's between that and X2. Uh, Days of Future Past. It's a miracle that movie makes any sense, let alone is actually entertaining. <laughs> Uh, and uh, then we had, we had uh, the Wolverine, and then uh, um, I went. I got the order wrong. The important thing is that Deadpool is number eight. <laughs> uh, I, I always considered X Men Apocalypse to be X Men Eight because I wasn't sure how canonical Deadpool really is. And, that, uh, but Grant here's a little iffy, but, but they're all the part, part of the franchise and they're made yeah. by the same people. And also, here's the fun part about Deadpool it's aware of how convoluted the franchise is. Yeah. We're dealing with multiple timelines and a lot of time travel and different versions of the same characters and mm. how they interact across those various timelines and they're played by different actors. And uh, there's even a line of. Di- and it, this might be confusing for audiences, or even if you can follow it, it's like kind of hard to keep them straight, or you need a lot of words to explain why yeah. they can be kept straight. And Deadpool himself is also confused. Yeah. It's a bit where uh, uh, Colossus says, I'm going to take you to the professor. And he yells out, is it the, the Patrick Stewart professor or the James McAvoy professor? Because I've lost I've lost track of the timelines. I, like I feel it's, like that's it's really might, self-aware. I think that might actually be from Deadpool 2. But oh, is it really? I, maybe. But there's a lot of jokes to both effects, yeah. actually. One of the things I like, I think, in Deadpool 1 is just like, yeah. Oh, I'm going to go visit the X-Men. And mm-hmm. it's Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Because we actually don't have the budget to get... Fassbender yeah. <laughs> and like Jen Patrick Stewart and you know Logan and all these guys. Um, so, but so the basic gimmick of Deadpool, and it's interesting because this Deadpool didn't start out this way. Hmm. Deadpool, when Deadpool was created in the comics, he was just a highly trained mercenary. In fact, he was basically a ripoff of Deathstroke the Terminator, except he was a loudmouth and he just wouldn't shut up. Hmm. That was it. That was the whole thing. In fact, he wasn't even a mutant originally. He was the guy who'd been experimented on and had like Wolverine style healing powers, but it like but scarred he, it his whole body. Badly, yeah. yeah, it scarred his whole body. That part's permanent, and so he's constantly stuck on a thing, giving a little bit of tragedy. Um, over time, they decided that the gimmick with Deadpool in the comics was that Deadpool knows he's in a comic book. Mm. And that made the character go from good to great. Devil was a fun character before. Now he's unique and hilarious 
And there's a lot of really, really fun stories that were told with him. And they decided to keep that element, which is really daring, in the motion picture, which calls attention to the unreality of everything that we're seeing. But by eight movies in, with a lot of wonky continuity and characters have been introduced multiple times and plot holes and everything, <laughs> calling attention to it was actually probably the smartest move. Because now we can actually just forget all about it and just have fun. Like, yeah... I know I had a really terrible appearance in X-Men Origins Wolverine. We're not going to talk about that except, anymore. Except we're going to include the, the the action figure of that character in this movie. Yeah, But whatever. We're calling attention to it. We know it makes no sense. This isn't mm. in continuity. Sorry about that. We're moving on. But the thing that works best about Deadpool is that on top of just being witty and funny, which it is, mm. it's genuinely funny, it's actually a good story. <laughs> it's not a terribly complicated story. Mm. It's told in a kind of a convoluted, you know, Tarantino time trippy kind of way. But uh, it's basically guy, a mercenary meets the love of his life. And then just when things are going well, he finds out that he's dying of cancer. And so he goes through an experimental treatment to activate his inert X factor gene, which makes him kind of a mutant. Mm. I'm fine with it. Who cares? Um, and unfortunately, it mutates his body, and now he feels like he can't be loved. He feels like a monster, and it's about him trying to get revenge for someone against someone who he feels took his life away. So it's about things like shame and humiliation and not feeling worthy of love, and the idea that he's going to compensate for all of that with violence and humor. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the whole movie, basically. So that just takes this really absurdist sort of delivery system, but uses it to deliver a story that actually has actual human feeling and mm. soul to it with a really good cast overall. Ryan Reynolds mm. is perfectly cast here. Marina Baccarin is really wonderful in this movie. It just kind of fucking works, and I think it's actually on my list of like the actual best superhero movies, even mm. though it is kind of meta yeah. and couldn't exist without the others, just because it, does, it takes so many risks narratively mm. and does them all right. I think the second one makes a lot of missteps, but this first Deadpool, mwah, Chef's <laughs> Kiss, just awesome movie. Yeah, second movie, they just repeat the same joke. Uh, yeah, there's some good bits, like the whole bit with like all the characters who die all of a sudden. Hmm. That's really, really funny, but it just doesn't have the heft yeah. that this one and, does. And I like Zazie Beetz in, in this. Yeah, Zazie well. Beetz kicks ass. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I agree with everything you said, although I think the uh, the all of the, the stuff you said about how important it is as a human story is kind of the most disposable aspect of it. I think that that's the sort of thing you need to set up just so that you can hang jokes on. And but I think it, without it, it the a, jokes wouldn't hang on. I anything. think if you actually, I think if you had weakened that, the jokes would have stood out a little bit better. I think right. uh, it would have been a, a little bit better as a commentary and as a meta narrative if they tried to make it look a lot less like a movie mm. and a little bit more like just something where reality is falling apart. Okay, well, I can appreciate that's, that's the most exciting part about it, but I love it for that. Okay. And uh, it came at a time when uh, superhero films had been dominating for so long and people were taking them very seriously. And in terms of film journalism, they were dominating the conversation so much that it was hard to level any kind of broad criticism at the genre in general. Mm -hmm. And here came a film that was doing it from the inside. Yeah. That was pointing out the ridiculousness of all of this and how hard it was to keep track of all of these narratives and if we're aware of superhero narratives to such a degree, then if you became a superhero, then you'd be aware of all of that shit. And the, the world itself is just as convoluted as strange as the movies are. 
I'm sorry, I'm distracted by Luca because he's just like sitting next just, to where we're recording. He's just and napping. He, he's just no, he's not napping. He's listening. He's, like, just he, listening he's, he's actually listening and enjoying the podcast. Yeah. Thanks, Luca. <laughs> You're a number one fan. Uh, I love that cat. Okay. Um. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, if that was also on your list, I guess I'll move on to my next one uh, to keep it. Go for it. Even. And this is one that I would be very surprised if it's not on your list. Mm. Uh, because while it is not my favorite Star Trek, it's a very good Star Trek. <laughs> okay. Star Trek First Contact. All right. It's not on my list. Really? Yeah. I thought you were a Trekkie. No, not for those Next Generation movies. That's the good one. <laughs> it, it's of those four Next Generation movies, it's the best one. Okay. That's not a high bar. Okay, and yet <laughs> Fit no... to Kill, way better than Star Trek First Contact. Fit to Kill has no pretense <laughs> to greatness. <laughs> Fit to Kill is, we have a spy movie, it's got a lot of topless women, some fun violence. Period. You did it. You succeeded, Fit to Kill. Wow. Okay, I thought Star, I knew you, man. Star Trek I, First Contact is, ooh, let's look look at these 60-year-old actors. They'd make great action stars. It's not that action. Okay, here's the deal with First Contact. Okay. Right. Star Trek. Uh, we do a whole Star Trek podcast where we talk about Star Trek every week on our Patreon. Hmm. And so I'm going to make this real, real brief. Star Trek, hit TV series in the 1960s, lasted three seasons, was a huge hit in syndication. And when Star Wars was a huge success, they said, okay, this has a cult following. Let's do some Star Trek movies. The first Star Trek movie kind of a yawn it's high, mm. it's high concept and some really good stuff in it but really wasn't the sort of action spectacle people were looking for mm. second movie wrath of khan now still not really an action movie by traditional standards but it had high stakes had a really memorable villain it's cool search for spock we lost spock mm. now we found spock four got to go back in time to save the whales that movie is hilarious and great <laughs> star trek five we got to go meet god at the center of the universe it's not great Star Trek VI, end of the Cold War, Star Trek style. It is legitimately great, and I maintain that that's still the best Star Trek movie. All right. Star Trek VII, we finally move away from the original series, and we start having The Next Generation. For whatever reason, they felt it was completely necessary to sort of hand off the franchise by including Kirk in it. But yeah. it, Even the way, though the, the, it had already been handed off? Yeah, yeah. it handed off like yeah. on the show and the movie. I think I think Undiscovered Country has a really elegant ending to the franchise, yeah. the original franchise. And so they sort of inexpertly sort of shoved some original franchise characters and stuff into mm. uh, Generations. And then the actual plot of Generations just was just kind of like a pretty good episode of the next generation. Like it really wasn't necessary to make that into a movie. Uh So bit of a downer. So when Star Trek first contact came out and yeah, maybe it's not as good as two, four and six, but it was a good movie. Like it was an entertaining movie. It featured a lot of the things we wanted to see in a film. It made the most of having a bigger budget and it did something we hadn't really done before. No, not time travel. We'd done that a million times before, but we went back to a time we'd never seen. Hmm. So in Star Trek First Contact, uh, the Borg, who are these like super cyborgs from outer space uh, who turn everybody else into cyborgs and remove their free will, Mm. uh, they have returned to the galaxy as we know it. They're a major threat. They're killing everybody. And just as the Federation finally defeats the Borg, the Borg decide to go back in time Mm. to the very first time humanity made contact with an alien species and prevent that from happening so the Federation will never be a threat. Uh, kind of crazy, but whatever. That's it's, fine. No, nah, it's kind of a dumb plot. It's kind of okay. a dumb plot. There's a lot of Star Trek movies and shows with dumb okay. plots that are still good. And so the, basically, we're going to go back the, in okay, time, or we're going to fuck with the timeline. Yeah, the Borg can go back in time, and their whole goal is to assimilate Earth. Why did they go back? Why didn't they go back to like 1850? 
or or to the dawn of humanity and just okay. ensure that the, the humans never existed in the first place. Because hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm waiting. Because it's more fun this way. I I suppose. So basically what happens is the crew of the Enterprise has to go back in time and try to make sure that the first warp speed flight, the first faster than light flight in, in human history happens exactly when it was supposed to because that exact flight is what attracted the attention of the Vulcans and led to the creation of Starfleet. Okay, you're right. It's mm. super duper contrived. But it gets us to the fun in games. And I think there's a lot of really fun stuff here where we get to see these characters who travel through outer space for a living and to whom this should be normal, going back and discovering their sense of wonder as they realize mm. that, oh, initially this was a seemingly unthinkable scientific endeavor. Mm. Meanwhile, it's also about sort of tearing down our preconceptions of greatness as people meet famous scientists in the past who mm. would go on to give amazing speeches and inspire people and find out they're just folks. Mm. Dude invented it for money. Like, oh. that's it. Like, he just, he wasn't great yet. I'm going to take it, a leak, yeah, yeah. James Cromwell's really wonderful in this movie, mm. I think. And um, uh, so that's all really, really great. And then on while all of that's going on on Earth and while they're doing this kind of mm. back to the future thing, trying to make sure mom and dad, mom being the Vulcans and dad being Earth, get together at the mm. Enchantment Under the Sea dance. <laughs> while that's going on, Picard is uh, Picard. <laughs> Picard. P- P- yeah. Picard. No, it's it's a uh, Picard. Guess way. Uh, J- J- James Luke Picard. Yeah, he uh, he's uh, he's in space trying to fight off the Borg. So mm. there's a little action element. It's actually not that actiony. The action's actually like kind of slow and clunky because it's Star Trek. They don't do fast. Mm. They don't do crazy action set to the Beastie Boys yet. It's not about that. It's just mm. about sort of intimidation. It's about. Um, you know, that's the scale of it. It's about the threat. Yeah. And the Borg are consistently threatening. And we get a really wonderful Borg queen character played by the great Alice Kriege, who um, has some wonderful scenes with Data and Picard. You get Alfred Woodard getting to yell at Patrick Stewart and put mm. him in his place. It's great. Gotta go hunt your whale. Yeah. And, and afterwards she realized, she, she admits like, you're right. I hadn't really thought of myself as Ahab and now I feel bad. And Alfred Woodard's just like, I actually never read it. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just know the cliche. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fucking great. Um, and I, listen, you're, listen, it's, is it the top tier of Star Trek movies? No, I put it at like mm. number four or five. All right. But as an eighth movie in a series, especially when they had just changed over the entire sort of feel and cast of the franchise, mm. And the first time out was at best a mixed bag mm. to all of a sudden make one of the better films in the series that has kind of a different vibe but still feels like Trek. Good job. So I'll give it some credit. I'll give it say it's at least one of the best eighth movies ever. All right. Fair. Sure. Yeah. You just don't really right. care, do you? Not really. You know, like, what's the, is it, you're saying it is, though, the best next generation movie. It, we can agree on that. Of, of the four next generation movies, it's the best one. Okay. Is it good? Um, it's good. Okay. Then okay. we're not going to fight too much. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes your apathy reads a little bit mm. like, you know, just sort of like derision. <laughs> yeah. Go have your Star Trek. I'll be over here with my Star Wars. Okay, fine. Like a hero. Fine. Last Jedi. Is that your next one? Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, it's on mine too. The eighth, uh, the eighth chronological. Oh gosh, I hate the numbering on Star Wars. Um, the eighth chronological film made in the Star Wars series was. Star Wars Episode Two, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, that was the eighth film. Because if you include all the stuff that people yeah. don't like, including that's what you get. Because you got the original trilogy, 
you got the original trilogy, you've got the two Ewok movies, so that well, gets yeah, you to yeah. five. Then you get six, which is The Great Heap. Uh-huh. And then you get Phantom Menace, and then you get Attack of the Clones. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, Attack of the Clones is actually... There's, yeah, or, or maybe it's The Phantom Menace. I think it's The Attack of the Clones. Because we had... because Oh, you forgot the holiday special. So I guess Phantom I Menace it... would be the eighth film. Okay, two plus yeah. one. <laughs> one plus, plus one, one plus two, two plus one. Uh, no, okay, so we're going to do this again. So Star okay. Wars. Original Star trilogy. Wars. Star Wars, holiday special. Yes. Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, A Caravan of Courage, Battle for Endor, Great Heap, Phantom, Phantom Menace. Menace is the eighth film. Okay. Some people don't include Great Heap because it's very much a TV movie, mm-hmm. in which case you get Attack of the Clones. Either way, those are not great movies. No. Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace are bad films. Uh, I, I will have none of this this uh, rewriting of history. Look, I'll say... They're there's, good, actually. There's good stuff in them. I'd say there's good stuff in both of those yeah. movies, and they're definitely very influential in a lot of ways, but I don't think they're told very well. No. Yeah, yeah they're incredibly badly written. But just for the sake of clarity, yeah, there the are Skywalker saga, the, uh, which now it's the Skywalker saga. It wasn't before uh, the ones with Roman numerals at the head. Yeah. Even though they were all really, they released in a wonky order, but one has a number eight right at the front. <laughs> yeah. like, we're going to go with that. It was the, like maybe the, the 14th film in the series, but it has number eight at the head. So we're going to go with that one. <laughs> and it's my second favorite Star Wars movie. So it's, it's yeah. the last Jedi. It's um, my third favorite. It's mm-hmm. I just, re- I, this is a movie. That when I saw it in theaters and I saw it again when it came out on home video, and I really, really, first time I saw it in theaters, I was I liked it a lot. Hmm. Then it grew on me as I thought about it. Then I rewatched it again on home video and I liked it a lot. But I haven't watched it again since, and it's been the topic of so much conversation and so much spite because people who <laughs> yeah. just not just people who didn't like it but like hated it. Which that I was a little baffling, but all right. I know I was actually nervous to go back to it because I was concerned that hmm. the movie that I enjoyed wouldn't be there anymore. Maybe all I'd see is the negative. Yeah. And I rewatched it again last night for the first time, like practically since it came out. Mm. And it's so fucking good. Like, there's a few bits here and there that don't work. It's a Star Wars movie. Most Star Wars movies, you can say that. Yeah. Like, there's a few, like, jokes that don't really land and the plot's a little convoluted. It feels like they're shoving, like, two movies worth of stuff into one film. Yeah. But yeah, who cares? It's so good. That, that, that's my, my my biggest issue with the Last Jedi is it's two movies. Yeah, it, it is so so much is going on in that movie, and it ends at one point, and then it continues on for like an entire another features worth of events. Yeah, it feels like everything that happens on. I was like thought the movie was wrapping up, and mm. then like no, we haven't like gone to crate yet with the salt planet. I'm yeah, like that's like, another like half hour of the movie, <laughs> and it's good. But yeah. like I was seriously, I was ready it, to it, go home. It should have <laughs> been uh, chapters eight and nine, but yeah. they. they yeah, they crammed eight and nine into one, and the series ended after that. <laughs> it, it, no, no, that, that, that is to say, that is to say, the story came to a conclusion. Like, yeah. I, like the 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 rebels were overthrown. There were only like twenty people left, mm-hmm. uh, but there was still some hope in the universe that things might start up again. But there's mm. nothing we can do anymore. We're not going to like rally and take on the empire and and the oh shit, the empire is back. Somehow and, and Palpatine em- has returned between from movies. the old movies that died I, is back. I and... actually disagree with it. Watching the movie again last night, I don't, I feel like it could have ended there and that would have actually uh-huh. been pretty satisfying. But I feel as though the intent is uh, listen, we've we've all learned at the end of Last Jedi, all the characters have learned really valuable lessons and they've become very different people. Yeah. And I feel like they're at a place of strength at that point, even though there are very few of them. And now the stakes have been raised higher than they've ever been because it's like, yeah, you're right. It's 20 people, basically, who survived that movie. 
So that's not so really like, a rebellion. That's just 20 people. I know, but that makes going into three, you would think, okay, it's going to be 20 people versus the versus the entire First Order. How are they going to do it? And they're going to do it by just throwing in a bunch of people and pretending that none of that shit ever happened. Mm. Fuck you. Like, it, that's the thing that really pisses me off, because I actually feel that like The Last Jedi cleaned the slate a little bit, but there's yeah. still plenty of room to continue because we haven't resolved the story of Kylo Ren. We okay, haven't resolved Rey's inner conflict. There was more places to go. I don't. They, we did resolve this, the story of Kylo Ren, though. He chose to rule the Empire. He chose to be the Emperor. Mm-hmm. That's the end of his story. I think that's. that's a, I don't. But I don't. I think that's. It's not a very end. hopeful ending, I but think, it's an ending. I think it's a conclusion. I don't really mm. feel like it's a satisfying ending, though. Oh. Whatever, we can debate that. But in any case, but in any case, I, you're right. It I, does feel, feel like a like whole conclusion it, to a if, series. If they yeah. had ended the series there, it would have been a fine conclusion to that series. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, I I feel like they were actually uh, Ryan Johnson, who wrote and directed this movie, was actually trying to trying to announce to the world from within Star Wars, the same similar to Deadpool, that there's not a lot left we can do with Star Wars. That we've been fighting the same goddamn Star Wars for <laughs> decades now. Yeah, it's a when, cycle. It's yeah, a, and when, it's a frustrating when cycle. When is this going to end? Is a good guy or a bad guy going to win at the end of this? And, you know, the good guys have won, but it doesn't mean anything if the bad guys just come back again. This is why it so, bothers me when people talk about why Canto Bite is irrelevant in mm-hmm. that movie. Like, no, it's actually really important because it shows you that this is part of a system. Yeah. War yeah, is exactly. a system. The reason why this war is, recurs is because war is money. And this is this isn't Star Trek. This is a capitalistic system. We have the huts we have people who are but, uh, profiting from this to point out that war is an ingrained part of the system is a very star trek thing and in fact i think bit. i think i like star wars uh this star wars film because there's a lot of star trek stuff in it <laughs> like an actual command structure is admired for the first time yeah the whole thing like, with holdo is very very much a star trek yeah, kind like, of thing like where, uh, the, there's yeah. a new admiral you will follow orders i have a plan you don't need to know what it is that's like captains and ensigns and lieutenants and stuff that's fair it's not up to some random pilot to save the day. He's in part of a command structure and he has to follow orders. Yeah. So when they go (laughs) off to do like this big sort of side mission and we're going to do this like hero Star Wars-y thing, I think it rather deliberately goes nowhere that's the whole point of that sequence i think i think that sequence is interesting because i think a lot of people look at star wars as just like hey like a farm boy and a space pirate are just gonna pick up guns and kill the empire and the last jedi is just like yeah there's a whole rebellion that we're not really talking about what if they're cool Hmm. and what if we don't necessarily need someone to just kill to save the day like what if just jumping in an x-wing and blowing stuff up is not the solution to all of our problems that maybe strategy is important and actually like learning to mature and trust your leaders mm. if they actually deserve it and they do like all of that's in there and I think it's that's yeah, really really great they also start uh, for the very first time doing a little bit more technicals on the way ships operate mm-hmm it's like in, in Star Wars previously, they just, they're just vehicles that take you from A to B. And we don't really get a good sense as to how big the galaxy is because you just go anywhere. Yeah. It's like, oh, I go light speed. Really? That's one tiny galaxy. You can make it <laughs> all the way right. across a galaxy at light speed. I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I was actually thinking about, because one of the more like prevalent complaints about The Last Jedi hmm. is about the whole concept of the movie is that uh, the rebels are caught in an endless chase, not unlike the sci-fi channel uh, era of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, and uh, but the idea is that they're worried about running out of fuel in space. They're just like they're propelling themselves forward. It doesn't really matter. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually not what's going on. And if you pay attention to the actual dialogue of the movie, what actually is happening in that sequence is they're running from the Empire, the First Order. I, they're interchangeable. I don't care. Mm. Um, 
they're running from the First Order, and they specifically say that, like, look, we can they they're just have a head start, and they're just keeping pace with us. Uh-huh. But the thing that's going to happen is they're going to run out of fuel, which runs their shields. Mm. So once their fuel runs out and their shields go down, then we just blow them up. That's mm. what they're doing. They're not just trying to. They're not trying to outrun them with more engine fuel. They're trying to keep their shields operating long enough for a plan to come together that they can actually escape mm. the the first order. Yeah. So it's not about running out of fuel to keep the machines going because yeah, in space you hit the machines once they're just going to propel forward. It's about keeping the shields operating, and that's a different thing. It actually makes perfect sense. I mean, for a sci-fi movie, obviously, <laughs> yeah. but like but it's, it's actually fine. It, it's it's the first time in Star Wars though that we've worried about uh, starship fuel, you know, resources, yeah, actual actual like practical things. Well, the Millennium Falcon kept breaking down. I suppose so, but yeah, yeah. They, they don't say, okay, now we have to go to this planet because I need an inverted Wachahoosets that I need to plug into the inverted... That's actually literally the plot of Phantom Menace. Oh, you're right, it the is. The ship breaks down and they, they have to get it from Watto's the only person who's got it, so they have to go to that race and everything like that, so oh, yeah. technically that's in there before. What a well-written movie. Uh, <laughs> hey, you were just saying you wanted more of that. Uh, I guess so, but uh, yeah. but but good. <laughs> I want it good. <laughs> And I feel like in The Last Jedi, it is good. And they, they actually yeah. address something like they're constantly traveling like at light speed. But, you know, like in, in Star Trek there, you get a good sense as to how the ship operates and who needs to run what part of it. And they're actually like thinking about they're like setting headings and, you know, going off into the stars and like traveling in the way they ought to. Whereas in Star Wars, they just say jump to light speed. Great. What if a planet gets in the way? No, they talk about them in the first Star Wars. They have, they have to track. They have to set a course. Okay, they do, do have to do set they, a course. They yeah, they, they said okay. in the original Star Wars, they actually it was actually one of the first times people really talked about that, which was no. let's go to light speed. No, we have to set a course first, or we're just going to go right through a sun or something. Oh, I'm, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, so it's I'm one line. It's one line, but it is it is in there? Well, in in Last Jedi, we get to see what happens when they just sort of warp through something. It's so fucking <laughs> and cool. It's like the most badass thing in the it, world. It is, and it's tragic and it's sad, and I hate how uh, Rise of Skywalker says. Oh, that's a one in a million chance. Like, no, it would work every time. It's just a big sacrifice. It's a You'd giant sacrifice yeah. of resources and potentially people because someone actually has to be on the ship to do that. Mm. And we don't have that many ships. <laughs> the reason why isn't because it's a bad strategy. It's, re- it's because it sacrifices people and resources and we can't afford that. The, the rationale for not doing it makes sense. It was a desperation move. You didn't have to insult mm. Admiral Holdo for doing it. Admiral Holdo's a great fucking hero in this series. I love the bit in this movie where we only get like a little bit with oh. her and, um, and Leia. It's right after Leia wakes up. Okay. They have one short scene together where they laugh at each other and they're finishing each other's sentences. And you realize that these two have history. And that is an interquel I'd like to see. Like, if you want to do, like, a miniseries or something, I want to see, like, Leia and Holdo, like, how they, like, their relationship, because they seem cool together. I'm excited about the relationships mm. in this movie. I love Finn and Rose, and I have someone who is very jaded about the whole system, and yeah, the First Order is bad, but I'm, I'm not going to, like, make too many sacrifices. I was only making sacrifices in the first film for a friend, and here he's learning that the whole system is bad from someone who is actually very conscious of the world that they live in and actually really, really cares about things mm. and cares more about living and preserving life than just about killing people to get a job done. That's a really, really great uh, uh, interconnected thing. I love Ray and Luke here. I know some people are upset that Luke was tempted to the dark side. 
for like the fourth time. <laughs> it's not really that crazy. Like he's done it before. And the, so the, the idea that the the dark is always this tempting thing. Is, yeah, it's always great. there. It's always a presence. And yeah, he was tempted a few times. He didn't act on it. He just was caught thinking about it. Mm. And it was bad enough. And he's feeling so much guilt about that that he retreated. And I know some people mm. say, oh, Luke wouldn't do that. Why not? He only knew two Jedis and both of them retreated. Mm. When the Empire took over... Both Obi-Wan and Yoda went into hermitage rather than joining the rebellion that whole Mm. time, which they could have done. They both left. They both took themselves out of the equation. That's what Luke knows. When the Jedi fail, you go into isolation. Last Jedi is very much about repeating patterns of behavior and how it is up to a next generation to change that pattern. Yeah. And And that's what the original trilogy of Star Wars was about. They were trying to like unbreak what had been broken yeah. they were trying to fix a system by applying their new hope mm. if you will uh and i feel like this <laughs> the last jedi gets that okay. i think the last jedi gets that i think the force awakens sets that up really beautifully um yeah this movie is again it's a lot it's way too dense some of the plotting is a little unnecessarily complicated i actually realized that a plot hole i thought was a plot hole was not a plot hole what was that? What do you I, mean? So I remember the first time I watched this movie, um, there was a bit where they have to get someone who's a code breaker to go on one of the Star Destroyers and turn off their machine that allows them to track the rebels. Right. And an entire scheme that was uh, risky and ill-advised from the beginning. And that was the whole point of the movie is, yes, it was. <laughs> and it was probably, if you hadn't done that, things would have turned out better for everybody. I love that. Um, but uh, what happens is they go to, um, oh, what's her name? Maz Kanata. They, go, they call Maz Kanata and mm. ask if she can break the codes. And she says, yeah, but I'm in the middle of something right now. And I remembered her saying there's only one person in the galaxy who can do it. And mm. he's this guy who's on Canto Bite. And they go to find the guy in Canto Bite. And they don't actually get to talk to him, but they end up with a random code mm. breaker in a jail cell with them played by Benicio Del Toro, who does it anyway. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, so there's two and they both happen to be on Canto Bite. I heard it wrong. Okay. What Maz Kanata actually says is, the only codebreaker I can trust okay. is that guy. There are other people who could do it, but he's the only guy who's actually got scruples. Mm. And what they ended up with was a guy without scruples, and that ends up biting them in the ass. So... The movie is actually very well put together and very well structured. And there's, there's, I, there's just too much of it. That's there's a, there's that's so the much problem. of it, it's, it's easy to miss it. bits of it that yeah. make a lot of sense and are really very strong. So I love the shit out of this movie. It is my number three, but it's a very close number three. It goes yeah, Empire, yeah. New Hope, Last Jedi. All right. Very, very definite top three. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, okay, we, we, we both got two left. What's your number two? Uh, I... Again, this this one's a little bit questionable because if you include like oh and by, oh, and video, by the way, Star Wars: Last Jedi was my number one. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah, that was my All number right. one. All right, nice. Sorry. Um, again, this this one's a little bit debatable because okay. there's some straight to video sequels in this series. Uh, there's some TV specials in this series okay. that if you count them all, this pushes it way down the list. But in terms of theatrical. F- uh, like factual features within the series, the Muppets is the eleventh Muppet movie. That is the James Bowen movie. I got a little confused by that, so I left that off of my list, but okay. I'm glad you included it. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. it's worth noting just because the Muppets have made a few bad movies, but for the most part, we still love them. Yeah. In fact, I think that's the magic of the Muppets. You can oversell them. You can do all kinds of failed TV projects. 
Uh, in fact, the Muppets have more failed TV than they have successful TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of quality, there might be more bad movies than good. It depends but on what you count. Does, depends on what counts, really. But you know, through the muck of Muppet Babies and Little Muppet <laughs> Monsters and Muppets Tonight and uh, The Great Muppet Caper, which I don't like, but I know some people do, uh, and you know, Muppets from Space, like all these not you know arguably good at best movies. We still love the Muppets. Mm-hmm. The characters themselves can survive anything. They're like the Peanuts. Well, it helps uh, that because they're supposed to be, their whole shtick mm. is they are very little, spirited entertainers, but they're not always good entertainers. They're not, so they're if they always, make a bad yeah. movie, they just that was the shtick. They're always put upon. You know, yeah. uh, Fozzie is, is a bad comedian. That's the joke of the character. Yeah. So uh, if he not, makes a and, bad joke, you win. <laughs> and, and also what I love about the, the Muppets is, you know, Kermit is a very sensitive person. He cares about the people around him. So whether he succeeds or fails, if he stays a caring frog, you like him. Yeah. Uh, Gonzo doesn't care about anything. His head is in the clouds. He, you know, he cares about be, just being a, a, a great big star, but he only wants to do that on his terms. And that's like, like shooting shot himself out of a cannon and yeah. stuff. Uh, you know, so if he gets to follow his passion, then we like him. It doesn't really matter if he's successful, even if that's his ambition. Uh, so when we when it came time to do the Muppets, first of all, it felt really soulless when they announced it. It's like, hey, Disney came in. We're going to swoop in. We're going to buy it up and we're going to do a Muppet film. And we're like, oh, no. They actually bought it a be... while ago. It took them a long time to well, get that thing going. They bought it like they they had their name up above the films in the 90s. And I think uh, Muppet Treasure Island and Muppet Christmas Carol are among their best films. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they had it for a while. Then they sold it and then they bought it back. Oh, it was weird. Yeah, it was this weird sort of they, they weren't committing to the Muppets but yeah. they bought it then they committed they said we're going to make a new Muppet film and it's going to be written by a new, whole new crew of people we're going to do this mm. whole new Muppet thing and I'm like oh no that you don't you don't do that what are you going to make a CGI Peanuts film next oh that one was actually pretty good uh, <laughs> just goes to show you you never know you never know and, if it sounds like they, a bad idea it might still be a good and one while, while this isn't my favorite Muppet film it's still a very good Muppet oh, film oh I love yeah. the Muppets and, and I, think I think the Muppets is a great Muppet movie. I think the, the songs uh, that the songs are spot on really helps yeah Brett McKenzie they, from yeah. Flight of the Concords did the songs and they've all got this wonderful charming you know Harry Nilsson quality yeah but like Harry Nilsson via Broadway like yeah. it, it really really works uh, and and it is sort of this plucky. Let's just put on a show and raise a bunch of money. Spirit to it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, a remake of the original where they have to go on yeah. a road trip and collect the Muppets. But it's aware of that. It's about the legacy of the Muppets. It it doesn't. It banks on nostalgia, but not as hard as as to ruin it. Yeah. Um, they play the Rainbow con- Connection to the end, and I've said this before. That is a cheap fucking shot. <laughs> Works though. It, yeah, I know. And, and listen, if who can do it but the Muppets? If, if the Muppets can't do Rainbow Connection, who can? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm crying. Of course you're crying. It's the Rainbow Connection. <laughs> My one regret with this movie, and I and I, I love this movie to pieces. It's about like uh, these Jason Siegel who co-wrote it and uh, his Muppet brother Walter. Yeah. Um, they travel to Los Angeles with uh, Jason Siegel's fiance Amy Adams, and they get embroiled in a. Uh, someone wants to tear down Muppet Studios and like build an oil thing there. Uh, and of course, they have to get the Muppets together and put on a show to make enough money to buy back Muppet Studios, and yeah. that's it. It's a whole movie. It's wonderful. I love some of the new characters, like '80s Robot, which we had more <laughs> '80s Robot, which was a spoof of Rocky IV. Yeah, yeah. still funny. Mm. Um, but there's one thing in this movie they cut out a little thing mm-hmm. that I thought really made it stronger, and I don't understand why they did it. The bad guy in this movie is played by Chris Cooper. Oh. He's a he's a rich Donald Trump kind of dude called Tex Richmond. Mm. And his whole thing is he's trying to buy up Muppet Studios and 
they cut out the majority of his motivation, mm-hmm. which is that he doesn't know how to laugh. Right. That's the whole thing. Like, the Muppets, like, showed at a party, but he didn't know how to laugh, and people made fun of him for not knowing how to laugh. There's a one remnant of this sort of, like, backstory where when, like, he's, like, plotting with his evil Muppet, like, cohorts, Uncle Deadly and, um, is it Bobo the Bear? I think it's Bobo. Bob the Bear? It's a bear. Yeah. He's plotting with them, and instead of doing, like, a a maniacal laugh, like, (laughs) ah! What he does is maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. It's like something Vincent Price would do. So it's really hilarious when he does like a whole like rap musical number about Uh. how he's evil. But and the rich, if you listen to the soundtrack, there's a whole bit in his musical number that explains why he hates the Muppets. It's because he doesn't know what comedy is. Hmm. And at the end of the movie, he gets hit with like a cannon or whatever. But the idea is that's supposed to like make him suddenly start think things are funny, Hmm. and that sort of like. Leads to some character. Hey, knock it off, cats. <laughs> Guys are jerks. Um, so I think that made the movie a little bit stronger. But uh, yeah, I I didn't leave. I didn't put this on because the way I was counting, I think it was Kermit's Swamp Years that ended up being yeah, number eight. I mean, but if you count that way, which again we knew this would be an issue, yeah. Muppets is great. That's yeah. It's such. It's so funny and sweet, and the cameos are wonderful. And it's, and they they it's they. Great. Again, it's it's not my favorite Muppets film, but it is unbelievably delightful. Uh, and you can see that following that same tack didn't always work, because then they made Muppets Most Wanted. Which is which basically is, a remake of The Great Muppet Caper. Which is not a, not a good Muppet movie. It's really not. Yeah. I've tried rewatching it again, and it's like, they're good bits. It's like, it's like but, frantic and ugly and weird yeah, and, in it, a way that is it not becoming the Muppets. Well, it doesn't have heart. Like the, It's so caught up in its plot that it just isn't about like plucky underdogs. No. And that's kind of where the Muppets live. And mm. so... Yeah, I don't hate the Muppet Caper. I actually think Muppets Most Wanted is better than Muppet Caper. Um, it's really spotty and hit or miss, though, but there's some good bits. Mm-hmm. The whole bit with... Um, oh, what's the name of the evil Kermit in Muppets Most Wanted? Oh, it's like Vladimir or something. Something like that. I'm going to look this up. But um, the when the when he's like singing a song to Miss Piggy to try to like mm-hmm. buy his way out of an argument that could ruin his scheme, <laughs> um, and he's his whole thing about... Uh, uh, I'll I'll get you anything you want. Get you anything you need. He he he. And I'll make your dreams come true. That's a great number. That should have been nominated for an Oscar. I'm mad. The other thing that sucks about um, Muppets Most Wanted is they changed the title pretty late in the production cycle, mm. and there was a song in Muppets Most Wanted, the a- opening song, about how the movie is called Muppets Again. Mm. There's a song about the title of the movie, but Disney changed the title of the movie so that song no longer makes sense. Which is just corporate thinking in a nutshell, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Really, really, uh, really, really annoying. Uh, one sec. It's, um, uh, Kermit's... Constantine. Constantine, that's right, Constantine. <laughs> Constantine is the evil, it's the evil Kermit. Very, very funny. All right, uh, that's a great pick. Uh, my number three, and I'm going to pick this one next because I suspect my number two is your number one. Mm. Uh, is the eighth film in a really hit or miss franchise, but I think it's on the mend. And it's also a film that Whitney doesn't like very much. <laughs> uh, it's Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Okay. So the DC Extended Universe, which is not what Warner Brothers wanted to call it, but they didn't decide what it was called until much later, and now they don't have a choice. That's how naming things work. You don't get to pick your nickname. Nope. No. You just you got what you up. got. It's called the DCEU now. You're going to have to live with that. That's history. That's history. 
But uh, the DCEU got off to a weird start. The DQ. The DQ got off to kind of a weird start where Man of Steel is, you know, we have issues with it, but I actually think Whitney doesn't like it. There's a lot of things I like about that movie. This is me watching Man of Steel. There's a lot of things I like about that movie. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of things I like about that movie. Um, But there's a lot of things that does wrong, and I think uh, Batman v Superman kind of doubled down on that. All the wrong elements. The wrongs, the stuff that I thought were bugs, it turns out they thought were features, and mm. so that was kind of disappointing. Um, so I'm not going to relitigate that right now, but it was a mixed film. People liked it, people didn't like it. And it just, people weren't sure how we were defining this thing for a while. And so we had these really dark movies. We had Suicide Squad, which was going to be kind of oppressively dark anyway. And then they tried to lighten it up to be more like Guardians of the Galaxy in post, and that really didn't help. Mm. Uh, but it did have some standout performances, and one of those was from Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, mm. a character who hadn't had a live-action version since the Birds of Prey television series when she was played by uh, a really good Mia Sarah. Yeah. Like, she's really good on that show. The show is not great. but she, she never becomes Harley Quinn in that movie, but or in that mm. TV series. I mean, she never dresses up, but she's, well, like, she's, she's the bad guy. Then. Yeah, I guess yeah. Um, She's actually, she plays uh, the Huntress's uh, therapist, much like Harley Quinn was actually a psychotherapist. Um, and uh, she's been like insidiously undermining her the whole time, like a Hannibal Lecter kind of way. It's a clever use of the character, actually. Um, but uh, what happened was, you know, they did a whole bunch of other movies. Some of them were great, like Wonder Woman or Shazam. Some of them were not, like Justice League. But uh, I got to the point where Harley Quinn got to have her own movie, and they actually made it an ensemble piece with a lot of other prominent female characters from the DCEU. Characters like Huntress, characters like uh, uh, Black Canary, Renee Montoya, uh, a, a very different version of the character who would become Batgirl, but I'm fine with that. I don't mind changing as long as it's a good character. Um, and it put them in this very colorful, almost Paul Verhoeven-esque version of Gotham, mm. where everything is kind of over-the-top, ultra-violent humorous in a way that's very kind of mean-spirited sometimes but it's all part of a general overall tone which is to say that gotham is a place of extreme corruption and sexism and that harley quinn has been living in the shadow of the joker this whole time luca get off the table <laughs> luca trying to speak eloquently about birds oh, that's probably why he's here uh say birds? yes birds of prey it's a different thing um but uh and it's I lost my train of thought because of the cat. Luca, you're you're a chaos element, <laughs> and I love you to pieces. He's a little trickster god, right? Yeah, here. but uh, but in any case, uh, it's 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 got this kind of '80s dangerous kind of quality to it, where it's way more violent than you would expect something like this to be. It's got bigger ideas on its mind in terms of like social systems and everything, and the way that these over- larger than life characters exist within it. Mm. Uh, every single character gets the get gets their time, gets to be mm. like really broad and funny, but also express elements of their character that allow you to take them seriously. The yeah. action sequences kick ass. <laughs> They're so fucking cool. Um, it's got a great sense of humor. It's uh, um, yeah, Luca completely derailed my train of thought. <laughs> anyway, I love this movie. I actually think this is, in many respects, the best DCEU movie we've had. Uh, This movie gives me everything I want from a superhero movie while also feeling distinctive and interesting in a way that I feel like a lot of other superhero movies seem like they're coming out of what corporations think it should be. We have the Zack Snyder aesthetic. We have the MCU aesthetic. Um, We even even Joker feels very calculated. Like, how do we get people to take Joker seriously? We're just going to 
evoke other previously existing movies. And I feel like Birds of Prey doesn't feel like it's just beholden to some other thing. It is a very distinct personal expression about what the superhero stories can be uh, and the way these characters would interact and how they can be taken seriously while also being extremely Mm -hmm. funny, while also being extremely violent and action-packed. It gives me kind of everything I need from a superhero movie. And it's one of those movies where... Man, I wish this movie had come out like decades ago so its influence could have been felt whether or not it was a giant hit mm-hmm. because I think the legacy of this movie is going to be very, very strong. As people look to this and see that like we can actually shift what a superhero movie can be and let it be something with more distinct points of view, different kinds of action, different kinds of production design, uh, you're just not into it. No, no, okay. not at all. I, I think it does feel calculated. I think it's... Mm. Uh, the least exciting, exciting movie that I've seen in a while. It's the uh, least funny, funny movie I've seen. Uh, Every, they, everything they feels, everything feels like a, a, like posturing rather than the genuine article. Uh, I, my fear going into Birds of Prey was that it was going to be like Suicide Squad. That it was just going to be like mm. big chaotic mess of noise because same character, mm. same actress playing that character. It's a, a sequel to that film, so. And I, I really hated Suicide Squad, so mm-hmm. I'm going into this thing saying, oh, movie, oh, oh no, Squad, the, yeah. the, the wheels are just going to be off this thing, and it's going to be a, a big chaotic mess of weird aesthetics, and nothing's going to fall together. And I'm, I was watching the movie, and I, was, and I found myself waiting for the wheels to come off. I wanted it to get a little bit crazy and wild. I wanted the violence you don't, you to don't feel You don't think violence. using cocaine is like a Popeye kind of super, you know, mm. power-up? You don't think that's kind of crazy? You not, don't the, think th- not the way they filmed it. it, no. it, it again, it felt like uh, the... It felt like somebody trying, somebody who doesn't watch Family Guy trying to write a Family Guy joke. All right, would you please get Luke off the table? <laughs> He's actually like chewing on stuff. Stop! Now. Stop! Stop it, Luke! Stop he chewing. wants attention. You're a puppy. I want attention. It's a cat who's a puppy. I'm a cat. So uh, this was one of those films that, uh, again, I, I when I and I, I said this when I saw it, I saw it at a late night screening. And I think the sound might have been off. Because there was a lot of not weird like all the way off. You would no, just that, the, the, like like, yeah. like just not quite spot on. Mm-hmm. I think that like I wasn't hearing certain parts of the movie. Maybe yeah. it wasn't like like it sounded like one of the channels was out. Oh, that's which sucks. and it was late at night, so it might have been like a a result of a bad screening that I yeah. just wasn't finding myself that enjoying stinks. this movie. Uh, and I feel like so many people uh, that I respect and admire have come out and said that this is just this wild great time at the movies that I didn't feel, that I feel like I need to go back. I think you do. I, I need, really do. I need to rewatch this movie because I'm either missing something mm. or uh, or I'm just a horrible person. No, I don't think It's entirely possible. Look, 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 it could just be, it's just like comedy can be a little ineffable. Maybe it's not your tone. Mm. Uh, I can well, appreciate and, all that. And yeah, and it's a thing, bit chaotic I, I, and like... I this, love wild chaos humor. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I love... Movies about punk rock clown women who smash dudes in faces with mallets as they dismantle the patriarchy. Well, you like all that that idea is awesome. You like but I Tank like, Girl? I like. To, I think Tank Girl is a bad movie, but I like it a lot. Okay, I feel like I feel like Birds of the Prey is like mm. the good Tank Girl. Okay. Like, and by the way, I love Tank Girl. Actually, that's a bullshit thing to say. I think Tank Girl is great too. But like, you, you Birds can of love Prey is, bad movies. It's Birds, fine. I, not, yeah. I don't think it's bad. I just think it's you know hammy. And okay. So like, it's trying to be. Mm. Um, and of course, that's another one of those movies where the studio kind of ruins some stuff. But yeah. um, I think it's got that kind of sort of rebel energy that you would that you find in Tank Girl. But here, I think it's more focused. I think it's right. um, stronger cast overall. You're actually allowed to take the characters seriously uh, in Birds of Prey, in addition to all of the wildness. Um, mm. I I would very much like you before the end of the year okay. to see Birds of Prey again. Uh, perhaps I will. I I own it. All right. Please just borrow it. 
I beg of you. <laughs> I would just like you to see it yeah. because I think it's better than you're giving it credit for. I, I, I walked out of that thing saying, yeah. where was the movie there? This it felt was, so like, bland and insubstantial to me. Uh, Luca distracted me and I got inarticulate and I always mm. feel bad about that on a podcast. But this was, for a bit, my number one on my list. And then I was like, you know what? It just came out this like year. Like, for the best of the year? No, for the best of the eighth movies in oh, a franchise. Okay, yeah. like, and then I was like, it just came out this year. It no, just let, came let out. Let it stew a little Let's bit. let this yeah. one stew a smidge and like let's just play it a little, I don't about to say safe, but mm. you know, let's go with something that I think has had an opportunity to sort of rest and like show this it wasn't a zeitgeist. We're not, our passion for it isn't going to fade over time. I picked The Last Jedi. That mm. was my number one. Uh, we're about to move on to your number one, but I think Birds of Prey is a pretty solid number two All right. uh, for me. And I, right. Luca, you're bad. <laughs> I'm getting away with my film cases. Um, all right, and the, which leaves us only with uh, your your number one and our runners up. Your number one, and I suspect my number two. If I know you well enough, okay. Well, do I know you well enough? Perhaps you do. This film uh, takes part in two different series. Yeah, in, I know you well one, enough. In one series, <laughs> I yeah, know what it is. In one series, it is the eighth film. In one series, it is the series it is the twenty second film. <laughs> This is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein came along at the perfect time. Uh, if you trace uh, the Universal Monster movies series, like the, the which are, I'm not sure when they started to be sold as a piece. Mm -hmm. It wasn't right away. But, uh, no, it, I think it people take, just started to notice that all of these yeah. monster movies Universal were doing have similar aesthetics. Yeah, and, and they, they were sharing directors a lot. And yeah. they, they, they didn't necessarily share a universe for a while did they um until the 40s uh but yeah throughout the 1930s all of these great monster movies started coming out of universal and they've been sort of advertised now as the universal monster canon i think there's other great horror movies that universal put out in the 30s sure that aren't in that canon for whatever reason yeah but, uh, the old dark house really should be considered a universal horror movie yeah, and it's yeah. kind of not and apparently the reason some people have argued why is because it was unavailable for a really long time and it just sort of fell out of Notice. Well, I think Old Dark House. I'd have to look this up, but I think it might be one of those films that fell into the public domain. Oh. So, uh, like Universal owns it, but don't. So, why, just why advertise this thing if anybody can make it? Yeah. Uh, the Old Dark House, by the way, is awesome. The Old Dark House is very, very the original good. one. Yeah, is it's a James Whale film with Boris Karloff. Great. Uh, but by even by the late '40s, it was hard to take these movies seriously anymore. There were mm. so many bad sequels that came out, like in the late '30s and mid, throughout the mid '40s, and, and even were, into the '50s. And they were goofy. There was even before Abbott and Costello came along. Yeah. There was brain swapping and yeah, sons yeah, and they, sons and sons of things they, and continuity got thrown right out the window. And they, they, yeah, the, some of those mummy sequels are just abysmal. And some of them are like half clip shows. Like yeah, it's like a, it's like an eighty they, minute they just, movie and like thirty five minutes of it are clips. Like it's ridiculous. But uh, in order to sort of breathe new life into the series, Abbott and Costello got involved, which was sort of smart. You get the audiences for both; mm -hmm. they cross over, and you point out the more ridiculous aspects of these things while still having monsters. Yeah, and I think the I think the way, the reason why these Abbott and Costello movies where they meet monsters, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein especially is because of how much respect they give the monsters. Yeah, it feels like the monsters are actually, like, in their own monster movie. Yeah. And Abbott and Costello just kind of got in the way, and the reverse is also true. Abbott and, and Costello are in an Abbott and Costello movie, and monsters are getting in the way. And Abbott and Costello are genuinely afraid of the monsters. They're just mm -hmm. afraid in a funny way. Yeah, and I love... The best parts in this movie are the parts where the monsters are trying to do monster stuff, mm -hmm. and then Abbott and Costello come in, and they do their wacky stuff, and the monsters just kind of, like, don't know what to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you see, like, Dracula leaning up on them and then 
Costello's like, Jack! <laughs> and he's just, Dracula's like, oh, you know, fuck it. <laughs> like, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> because monsters keep their dignity in this. Yeah. That's what's yeah. great about this movie is that I'm actually. They never, it's not like they sit the wolfman down and shave him. No, it's never quite that stupid. Lon Chaney's actually really committed to this. Like he's mm-hmm. Lon Chaney's not the most amazing actor, but he's a great sad sack. Yeah. And so his whole thing about playing the wolfman is like this great tragedy that has befallen him. He's doing that this whole time, and that's actually a funny sort of counterpoint to Abbott and Costello's wackiness, is his genuineness. Yeah. 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 Um my thing with this movie, and the reason why it's not my number one, it's a great movie for historical significance. And the plot is real simple. Abbott and Costello are Abbott and Costello. They're, Frankenstein has... Uh, the, Dracula and the Frankenstein monster moving, have come to America. They're moving stuff into a museum. And, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a wax, a, museum. wax museum. And it's Dracula and the Frankenstein monster, the actual Dracula and Frankenstein monster. Mm-hmm. And Dracula has teamed up with a mad scientist, and he wants to find a new brain for the Frankenstein monster that would be easier for Dracula to control. And... The like the dumbest brain they could find, the most easily like manipulated brain they could find is Costello. Mm. So they're trying to get Costello into this, you know, laboratory in a dungeon and just cut out his brain and put in Frankenstein monster. And like mm. half the movie is Costello trying to tell uh, Abbott that something horrifying is going on and Abbott won't believe it. Uh-huh. Honestly, if I'm being perfectly frank, I think the first half of this movie isn't very funny. <laughs> I, I, I'm not an oh, Evan Costello guy. I, I, I am an Evan Costello guy, I, I'm so not, I, I do like their shtick. I'm more, so. I'm more of a Marx Brothers guy or even a Laurel and Hardy guy. Evan Costello, like they've got good bits, but I've never been a huge fan. The first half of this movie is like kind of entertaining, but it's also just not very clever. Okay. It's in the second half of this movie where it just goes into a full mad monster party. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts turning great. <laughs> because when Evan Costello was like chained up in a dungeon and he's trying to tell like. Dracula, like, hey, don't use my brain. I've had it thirty years, and it sucks. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> yeah. obviously, but these are these are the jokes. Um, once it starts getting really wacky and broad, and people are breaking through like doors and stuff, and all the monsters start fighting each other, that's when it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing in this movie, by far, is when Dracula fights the Wolfman because. What's happening is Abbott and Costello are trying to escape the dungeon, and they keep running into various monsters and bad times, and it's mm-hmm. great. Um, when in the background in a lot of these Dracula is fighting the Wolfman but Dracula versus the Wolfman is like Dracula keeps like throwing scenery at the Wolfman he throws a vase at the Wolfman at one point he throws a shoe which is just hilarious <laughs> to see Bella Lugosi throwing a shoe at Lon Chaney as the Wolfman and it actually ends really cool because it ends with Dracula like running out to a balcony and there's a really nicely animated transformation sequence by the creator of Woody Woodpecker um, and he like transforms into a bat on camera and he flies away. And then the wolfman like jumps into the air, eats the bat in midair, and then falls into a lagoon. That's actually kind of cool. <laughs> like there's actually some really fun stuff going on. And once it turns into madcap insanity in the second half, I'm all for this movie and I really like it. I just find the first half kind of dull. Mm. Okay. But uh, yeah, this is like one of the first like big like. We'd had like monster team ups before, but they weren't very satisfying for the most part because the monsters never spent no, a lot like, of time together. House of Dracula is a yeah. little little boring. Actually, here yeah. we actually see the, the monsters spend more time together. It's more entertaining that way. If you like Abbott and Costello, you'll like their humor more than I did. Mm. Um, this is a neat flick. I like it a lot. I, I, yeah. I, a lot of people bring it up as you know, sort of precedent for the Avengers. It is so much more than precedent. <laughs> 
for the Avengers, I'm going to say. It is one of the first movies to really do this, though, is to have this big mashup. And Mm -hmm. the fact that it was a genre bender as well. It's yeah, really a, fascinating. A horror comedy. In, in, yeah. yeah the, and not just a horror I mean, comedy horror where the horror is kind of funny. Yeah. Like, like Bride of Frankenstein's kind of a horror comedy, but here it's... It's a slapstick mo- comedy yeah. with horror elements. I yeah. still want to see Universal do a monster movie. I know they're trying to do these like kind of dead serious Invisible Man reboots, which I'm fine with. I think that's a good w- route to go. Uh-huh. Concurrently, you could do a really broad Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman kind of movie, but with Key and Peele. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's the movie. Do that, that movie. I want to see that movie. That's what they were talking about when they were launching the Dark Universe. Remember yeah. that? Uh, I don't know if they were talking about it as much as audiences. Well, audi- wanted audiences it. were. It's like we we have already planned. Uh, they did the Mummy. They yeah. were. I think the next movie in that series was going to be the Bride. Uh, uh, the Bride and Jekyll and Hyde and the Invisible Man were like all yeah we're all all, all around all the same come time. around at the yeah. same time and they, they those were the ones they had like in pre production already. And everybody said, well, if you're going to do that, get Abbott and Costello. But, you know, you can't don't get Abbott and Costello or people who are behaving like Abbott and Costello. Get a new comedy duo. And Keen yeah. Peel was like the, the most frequently listed well, choice. A, they're, they're really mm. smart, funny comedians. They, they have a good cachet. People like them. And um, the idea of putting um, them not in a Jordan Peele horror movie, but in a universal horror movie. Mm. I'm laughing already. That's funny. Uh, either them or um, uh, Faye and Polar. I would love to see them as in a Universal monster. That would also well. be yeah. super funny. I would be fine with all of that. Um, anyway, so that's your number one pick. Abbott that's and Costello and Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my number one pick is Star Wars The Last Jedi. Now, when it comes to runners up, we don't have a lot of options. Or rather, we have a lot of options, but most of them aren't good. <laughs> I have some other films, like eight films that I saw, but they're all bad. Yeah, like here's what, here's what I wrote down. Like, uh... uh Let's see here. Uh, Alien Covenant. It's well shot. and Michael Fassbender has a good dual role, but it's not a good movie. The plot's no, terrible. It's, it's yeah, it, it's like loaded yeah. with plot holes. It's not enjoyable. Uh, it's completely insubstantial. The eighth Saw movie, Jigsaw, has one cool kill in it, but it's actually the worst Saw movie. Um, I actually haven't seen the eighth Leprechaun. Leprechaun Returns, which is after they tried to reboot the franchise, that's the worst Leprechaun movie, and that's saying something. Yeah, what, is, was it called Leprechaun or Leprechaun Origins? I think it was called Leprechaun Origins yeah. in the end, and that movie is just terrible. It's, it's like, it's, it's barely even... Really quite bad. It, you could t- call it anything other than Leprechaun, it would be the same movie. They don't even make the most of the premise. Mm. So they went back to the mold, is my understanding, with Leprechaun uh, Returns, but I haven't seen that one, so I don't know. Uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is the eighth Harry Potter movie. Um... Or Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Is Sorry. Safe. Specifically Harry Potter and yeah. the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Um, that's one where it's all kind of wrapping things up, but it's all the action and the violence. Mm. And it really doesn't have room for the character, which is I think is the big selling point of Harry Potter is the great sense of place, the great characters involved. There's some great moments in it. I like that movie fine, but it doesn't make my top ten. Okay. Um, trying to think. Live and Let Die is a fun Bond movie, but it's also really problematic and... Uh, that's how I counted that one. It's really dated. Thor The Dark World is the eighth uh, MCU movie. Well, we already said yeah. that's often talked of in terms of it being the worst. And There's some fun bits in it. I like all the stuff with Loki. I, I, I like I the whole know. thing with the hammer trying to like find Thor all the oh, way as, across as the world. As he's like teleporting all over the place. That's a, cool, that's a cool bit. I like that a lot. It has a straight line so it keeps turning around. I like all of that. That's fun, but it's not great. 
Um, and then there's a few, like, I never saw, I saw like, Piglet's big movie in the Winnie the Pooh series, or no, the Satanic Rites of Dracula. I never I, saw that I one. I have seen the Satanic Rites of Dracula. I remember nothing about it. It's yeah. completely insubstantial. I've seen Ernest Goes to Africa. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've seen all those movies. That, I've seen that, too. There's yeah. no way that's going on my list, even no, in the runners We, we, we already talked awful. about Hellraiser 8 and Halloween 8. Uh, the eighth witchcraft movie was called mm. Salem's Ghost. Uh, I've seen it. I almost put Lake Placid, the final chapter in here because at oh. the very least it's got Yancey Butler. But that's only eighth if you also include the Anaconda movies because eventually those franchises crossed over. No. And I was and I decided my rule was I was going to play fair and go by the original intention of the franchise. Okay. And so that doesn't quite fit. But that probably would have eked in at my number 10. Uh-huh. Because Yancey Butler is one of the great, I think, horror heroes. And yeah. she just doesn't get enough credit. But uh, yeah. Oh, and the Hell in Resurrection sucks. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, we kind of used up all we could. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the list. Those, that's the iron list for uh, this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing to the channel. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing on Patreon, who voted for this. Uh, this was a very silly idea for, uh, for a top ten list, but <laughs> yeah. we hope you enjoyed what came of it. Ah, mm-hmm. we've got cats. Cat time. They're, they're running around and meowling. It must be around meal time. So I think we yeah. got to wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. Uh, um, I'm, I'm just going to pause it for that. Can we feed these cats? Okay, the cats have been fed. All is well with the universe. Um, so that's it for the Iron List this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for subscribing. I already said all that. And especially thank you to all our patrons for helping us keep uh, this show and all the others afloat. Uh, we'll have a poll for the month of August on the Iron List coming up on our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, and of course we have polls up for a variety of different shows on the channel and uh, we have exclusive content on the Patreon as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, shows about Star Trek, shows about Star Wars. Wait, do we have Star Wars? No, Star Wars is on the main channel. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many podcasts, you guys. We have a bunch of podcasts and we're just going to keep on providing them to you because we like doing it and we yeah. like uh, providing content. I hate to call it content. We like providing words and comfort and analyses and whatever you might derive for you. So thank you again. Thank you, everybody. Um, If we missed something huge, please let us know. We tried our best. It's a weird category. Um, But yeah, if we missed something that you feel like is a great eighth movie, let us know. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to we'd love to find out. Um, And I think that's about it. So thank you, everybody. Again, uh, stay safe. Stay sane. Follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. He's at William William Seibel. I'm at William Seibel. He's at William Seibel. And um, that's the list. (laughs) 